With over 20 years of wrestling experience, Ric Flair enters the largest stadium in the world to wrestle against legendary Japanese wrestler Antonio Noki in which would be the biggest professional wrestling event of all times. It took place in the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea. This week we're looking at the actual true story of the collision in Korea. John, yes. Do you know anything? Uh, do I know anything? I, I know a lot of things, Leslie. Do you know um, anything, I, John Noonan? <laughs> you know, I know the sky is blue. I know for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Yeah. Do we have to pay for that? Oh, so it's more than thirty seconds, and we have to pay for the song. Or do you know anything about North Korea's uh, illustrious connection with uh, professional wrestling? I, do I look like a man that knows much about North Korea's illustrious connection to wrestling? Well, so you're going in this episode with zip. I am zero. going in cold. Let's let's face it. The only things you know about wrestling is uh, things I've told you over beer. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I don't think this has ever been done on a podcast before, where one person uh, talks and the other person goes in cold. It's never been done before. No, completely new. Completely new. Well, um, I know nothing about Alex Jones. Let's go. So. In wrestling, they use a carny word called kayfabe, which means to keep the reality of the story or the illusion of what's happening on screen. Um, nowadays, they don't really worry about kayfabe too much, but... Uh, you know, kayfabe or kayfade? Kayfabe. Fabe. Okay. Um, but in pre-internet days, if you were feuding with somebody in a story, you wouldn't be socializing with them, you wouldn't be traveling with them, you wouldn't be talking to them. So I say that because for this episode, we're breaking the kayfabe of our podcast uh, because because in, in this podcast, we talk about true stories. All true stories. But this week, we're talking about a true story because... The story is so insane, the true version <laughs> is a lot more interesting than the kayfabe version. Wink, wink, you get me. Yeah, I, do you know what, can I just point out as well, yeah. actually, because we've been aw- gone for a while. Yeah. We've been away for a while. I have been getting feedback from people, and they all do keep saying, where do you get all these true stories from? And they're like, they think, some of them think we've gone a bit mad. <laughs> and I'm trying to explain, it's because of the cold, hard research that we do, if nothing else. But yeah, no, I'm glad that we're emphasizing this. this these are true stories. And this is even truer True. than the true stories we've done before. So let's quickly talk about wrestling for a second. Now, okay. If you don't understand wrestling, I don't. it's very simple. Mm-hmm. It's all about stories and characters. And at its core, it's just an athletic form of storytelling in which the parameters of the stories typically tend to be those of a real athletic competition. Now... It's 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 this it's this. If you don't like, and I don't understand why people don't get wrestling. It's very simple. <laughs> it's very po- <laughs> popular among people who don't get a lot of things. This is exactly how you start every pub chat now when we talk about wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> Unprompted. Professional wrestling has as much to do with actual wrestling than the show The Office had to do with paper. It's just a premise. <laughs> For you to enjoy these characters and go on a crazy journey with them. Um, 
and finding an, an emotional connection with the audience and with these characters is it's key because no one like if you don't like the wrestlers or you don't hate the wrestlers or you don't love to hate the wrestlers it's a bit irrelevant you're not going to enjoy the matches you won't get involved you won't care who wins and loses within the story you won't care yeah. the progression of the characters all of these elements they're exactly the same as any other art form mm. a movie a video game a comic it's all the same so but in my opinion, wrestling at its very worst is when you have two angry guys who are all wet and shaking with anger and they're really, really angry at each other and they need to resolve stuff with the violence. That's when it's at its most boringest for me. You don't want conflict in wrestling. No, no, that that is just played out. That okay. version of that storytelling, it's been done. I like wrestling when it's weird performance art and it has its own poetry and its own weird logic, which we'll talk about its own weird okay. logic, which makes sense within the stories <laughs> it's trying to tell. So we'll, we'll very quickly go over the history of pro wrestling uh, because I think it's quite interesting. It started in Europe as a legit sport. We've all heard of Greco-Roman wrestling. Mm-hmm. This evolved into a style called Catches as Catch Can, otherwise known as Catch Wrestling. And for the sake of simplicity, it was the style in between Greco-Roman and Pro Wrestling. So a little right. bit more off the bat, a little bit more grappling, but no one's jumping off the top rope. Uh, <laughs> it's It came to North America about 120 years ago. And for the early stages of its life, it just took the lead from boxing in terms of style and format uh, and at that time, it was a legit sport. But wrestling pretty soon ran into a huge problem. They had a world champion who was a big, boring mother flipper. <laughs> <laughs> he wrestled long, boring matches that stunk at the house. And because he was so physically big, no one could pin him. <laughs> Ah, it's like what's that? What's that manga character? Uh, One Punch Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was killing the sport because it just wasn't not exciting, and like he just didn't have a personality anyone cling to. So that they had to uh, get creative. Now, this might shock you, John. Shock me. Carnies took to wrestling right away. <laughs> they loved it. Carnies in the circus knew that it was more about the sizzle than the <laughs> actual steak. They gave their wrestlers exotic backstories. They scripted what would happen. And they scripted who the champ would be. Because this is classic carny stuff. And we think, we don't know, but I assume around this time the wrestlers toned down the impact because if you couldn't wrestle mm. you couldn't make money and is it really worth getting punched in the head for real in front of a hundred people in spokane washington well you know there's pros and cons to everything in life mate you know but to sell the kayfabe the illusion of what was happening in the ring what they would do is they would call the biggest guy in the crowd to come up into the ring and you know you know what they did john Got him to wrestle? No, they beat the ever-living fuck out of him. <laughs> <laughs> so he would go back into the crowd with a bleeding nose and a bruised eye. Then the crowd was like, oh, well, if they beat up old Fisty Joe. <laughs> Not Fisty Joe! <laughs> yeah. 
everything that's happening in the ring must be real. And then they put on what is commonly referred to as murder gymnastics. And when I say commonly referred to, I mean no one calls it that. <laughs> and yet, weirdly, I'm also sensing a, I'm also sensing a brand new a brand new program on Netflix, murder gymnastics. If you like glow. Um, <laughs> So, legit wrestling morphed into carny wrestling in the 1920s, and no one really knows how this style of wrestling left North America. Maybe it actually started somewhere else and came to North America, we don't know. Um, But it just could have been a case of parallel thinking, because fighters in Japan and Mexico, you know, they want to reduce injuries as much as anyone else. It's It's not a huge leap. So... In North America, traditionally, they had a territory system, which means there was one promotion which controlled one territory, and you couldn't run shows in somebody else's territory. Okay. Pretty simple. Mm. Uh, And there was a body that governed all of this called the National Wrestling Alliance. And fun fact, John, um, as we'll see in the the NWA lost all its power in the 80s, and uh, 90s it kind of fluctuated, and... No, through the noughties and the 2010s. I hate that phrase so much. The but by the 2010s, it was pretty much dead. I actually, um, like, the NWA championship was defended in Berwick with two North American wrestlers, um, Colt Cabana and uh, Adam, whatever his last name was. Uh, Col- and they, they had this big uh, seven series of matches all over the world. And at the end, Colt Cabana won and threw down the belt and disowned it because he hated... You know, like, the brand was so fucking worthless. Because <laughs> he, he hated the management. He hated where the company was going. It got disowned by the champion in Berwick. <laughs> Uh, and Cole Cabana being quite a f- popular independent wrestling. He's quite well known. It's an active brand today, and it's quite popular because a couple of years ago, it was bought by Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. I was literally going to say that, uh, uh, of the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> yeah. Billy Corgan. I feel like we need to have a, like, a spin-off episode just about that. It's what? Yeah, and he um, does events in china and people like they have a belt which is defended in other people's promotions uh their current champion is this guy called willie mack who i really like (laughs) how could could you hate a guy called willie mack um so he's a detective on murder gymnastics oh yeah (laughs) so but back in the in the, the days gone past the nwa had its own belt and it was the number one belt in North America. And they decided who the champion would be. And the champion would go to each territory and defend the belt against whoever the local hero was. Okay. Um, so if you're going to Texas, that um, you know, you're probably wrestling a Von Eric. If you're going to Memphis, you're probably wrestling um Jerry the King Lawler. Um they obviously had a lot of champions, but the two most dominant of their respective eras are Lou Thez and Ric Flair. Both of those people will become important later. There's a lot more champions, but the, let's just focus you, on You understand people. that because literally the only name I've recognized so far is Ric Flair. Yeah. All the other names, you could literally be making these up as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, pay attention because all of these people are coming back. Okay. Because all of wrestling I did not know is, there'd be a test. <laughs> all of wrestling is connected in a weird way. Um, now, Flair being probably the main character of the story and who is my favorite wrestler of all time (laughs) now um the territory system fell apart when vince mcmahon jr from the wwf said fuck it or i'll try a vince mcmahon 
<laughs> impersonation. Do it. Fuck it. <laughs> All of... No, that's horrible. All of... <laughs> <laughs> all of North America is going to be mine. Uh, so what he did, he brought up all the key talent from each territory, uh, and he had a better understanding of the TV business side of things. And, and to dumb it down, most promotions filmed wrestling footage for TV. Vince Bigman was the first person who made a wrestling program for TV. Oh, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, he uh, used the medium... To promote the sport. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, I'm on it. So I'm going to jump around the timeline a lot here. Ooh, like so, Sam Beckett. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ziggy, plug, we're in the 80s. <laughs> so we're currently in the mid-80s, uh, and the WWF, they're, they're popular up in the north, and their main attraction is Hulk Hogan, uh, and their only real competition was World Championship Wrestling, which was in the south, and their main attraction was Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Um and once again, wrestling is just storytelling. And around this time, the WWF, which later became the WWE after they lost the fucking yeah, lawsuit to pandas the pandas. Things. Yeah. Uh, they started including elements of magical realism into their stories. And they, you know, they had witch doctor characters <laughs> and characters from other planets. And what I, I genuinely fucking love about wrestling if you were to ask me, can you name that 90s African-American witch doctor character? Leslie, can you name that 90s African-American witch doctor character? Which one? <laughs> no. But at the, <laughs> oh, no. But at the same time, they gave genuine representation to mm. Puerto Rican, mm. to Asian, to Latin American people who did not have representation on TV. And they weren't lame good guys like uh, Ricky Steamboat. Was as fucking cool as anyone else. Ricky Steamboat. Well, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And his real name is actually Richard Blood. I'm but, having the best day. But he's such a... Like, he's a good guy. Like, you can't ever think of him as a bad guy. But Richard Blood is the ultimate bad guy's name. <laughs> the surname Blood, you can't not be the bad guy. I'm yeah. sorry. But, once again, like... Wrestling gave genuine heroes yeah. to unrepresented groups. They also gave... It's, it's only until, I don't know, the 90s, if you were a Samoan, you didn't come out in a grass skirt. Jesus. <laughs> uh, the Rock's uncles, they had a tag team. and they, they had names, but they were commonly referred to as Samoan 1 and 2, and they talked in clicks and grunts. Christ. But, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking of that Futurama episode where Bender wrestles, you've got the, you got the rest of the foreigner. Yeah. I'm not from around these parts. <laughs> My ways are different to yours. That, that's exactly it. But at the Fuck. same time, it's like, oh, oh the Rock the biggest star in the world what everyone else has just fucking worked this out we knew this in the 90s <laughs> i liked it before it was cool man yeah you yeah. fucking hipster wrestler fan no i am um, getting very sidetracked now i remember watching <laughs> raw as a teenager and raw like the rock was lame for the first part of his career and i remember like he was chasing somebody out of the stadium and uh jim russ was just going on about how he had 10 percent body fat uh and like <laughs> he it's like oh how's that a thing anyone cares about jim ross um but he hadn't became, quote-unquote, The Rock yet. He was just a lame good guy. And I remember distinctively looking at him and going, no, nah, you don't have it, buddy. And it wasn't until <laughs> Jumanji 2 came out, you went, no, I get it now. No, I, I was very, very wrong. 
I couldn't <laughs> have been more wrong. That is like <laughs> just literally the most wrongest call in the history of anything. The next sort of 90 minutes now are just going to be you apologizing to The Rock for all your mistakes you've ever made, aren't they? Just like, I'm really, really sorry, Dwayne. Yeah. Oh no, he's okay. He's doing okay. He doesn't need the. the is he, he good? Is he good now? Yeah. Is he he good? doesn't need the Leslie Morris bump to get along in life. I don't know. I don't know. The Leslie Morris bump is you know is worth its weight in gold. So this magical realism can be seen in Hulk Hogan's gimmick. And I'm assuming everyone knows who Hulk Hogan is. I'm aware of his work. So, for example, uh, towards the end of his matches, he would always be losing, uh, and. Let's say somebody puts him in a sleeper uh, and he's about to pass out. So in wrestling, to win, you have to pin your opponent's shoulders to the mat for the count of three. Pin your opponent's shoulders to the mat for three counts. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in a submission move, you have three chances to respond. Uh, And a failed respond is the equivalent of a pin. So, um, So the ref would lift up. Hogan's arm to get him to respond. So he um so what would happen is he would lift up his arm, it would drop. He would lift up his arm a se- so that's one pin. Lift it up a second time, it would drop. So lift it up a third time, if it drops down this third time, he's gonna lose the match. Oh no. So he would do it again, it would fall, but at the last moment oh. <laughs> his his hand would ball into a oh. fist. And he would shake, and he would start hulking up. He's now, doing the thing? John, John, do you know what hulking up is? Oh, wait, 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 wait. I think I might do. Wait, is this? No. I said I don't make a fool of myself. I don't need to look. Is this with the ripping and the... Yeah. It's when he uses the combined energy of oh. all the little hulkamaniacs oh. in the audience. And like their energy fills his body, which makes him invincible for however long it took to break the hold, punch him three dimes, do an Irish rip into a big boot, and then finish him off with a leg drop. Exactly. When Tinkerbell, we all thought Tinkerbell was dead, but we all clapped, and then she came back to life. Exactly. Ah, oh, I get it now. We're talking a level I understand. Um, but like, once again, wrestling <laughs> has so its much. own weird logic, and this makes sense within the stories yeah. they want to tell. A great example is Han, Luke, and Leia. Those characters make sense within Star Wars. Mm. Can't put them in any other story. No, you couldn't even put me EastEnders, and that does everything. But I know the point you make, yeah, that, that has its own internal logic. Yeah. Everything's there. Let's, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, do you want to hear about my favorite Hulk up? Yeah, I do. Okay, it takes place in the 90s, and it's a little bit culturally insensitive then maybe no i don't <laughs> too bad because i call back to it later so god damn it so uh it's the early 90s and sergeant slaughter has just become an iraqi sympathizer oh god oh, fuck. <laughs> and this was during the first gulf war and with the help <sighs> just, just a sigh go on and with the help of Macho King Randy Savage. That's right, Macho King. He won the King of the Ring tournament that year, so he was a king for a year. He wins. That is a great. That, that, by the way, is the name of my second album, uh, King for a Year. Uh, hope you like it. He wins the WWF Championship belt from the Ultimate Warrior. Uh-huh. So this could only mean one thing, John. At WrestleMania 7, <gasps> Hulk Hogan has to win the WWF greatest prize, <gasps> but this time. He's doing it for America. 
Okay, but the pack is stacked against him, oh. John, because on Sergeant Slaughter's side is the Iron Sheik, who's, <gasps> who's been repackaged as Colonel Mustafa. Um, but whatever, it's the Iron Sheik. Um, <laughs> and the match itself, it's not a classic, but I quite like it, but I'm not going to die on the hill of this. Like, Me neither. No, I'm not. Ooh. Okay, so let's cut to the end of the match, and uh, Sergeant Slaughter has managed to draw blood from Hulk Hogan, and Hogan's <laughs> bleeding all over the place, and Sergeant Slaughter goes for the pin, but in an attempt to insult all of America, if not the entire free world, Oh, God damn. He places an Iraqi flag no. on the body of Hulk Hogan over no. the top and goes for the pin, John. One, two. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. You feel it coming. I feel it coming a little bit. He's hulking up. <gasps> he just doesn't kick out of this, which is what wrestlers traditionally do. He fucking just bench presses <laughs> Sergeant Slaughter <laughs> off him. And Sergeant Slaughter goes flying. And then he gets up on his knees and starts shaking like a dog. Oh. And he looks down to his enemy's flag, which Ooh. has his blood on it. But you know what, John? What? Hulk Hogan, he bleeds red, white, and blue, John. Fuck yeah. He's that, just a doctor about that. <laughs> that flag is lucky to have his blood on it. So God, I'm feeling it. He gets the flag. And he rips it apart. Ooh, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hang on a second. Morning, Vicar. Whoa. Which is such a piece of shit move because no one hates the country of Iraq. They just hated the dictator they had at the time. We hated the flag. It was terrible. We ripped it. And like people like that. There's people in Iraq who fucking love WWE. Could you imagine their tiny little faces? Oh. No, no, like they rewatch this shit now. It's like we get like if it was a flag of Saddam Hussein, yeah, like it, if it had a picture, yeah, that makes sense. But it's such a piece of shit move, Hogan. Oh, Hogan, you dick. But can we just be careful? Hogan did bring down Gorka. Like we are a yeah. fledgling podcast. We cannot. It's um. Let's get sidetracked. We get sidetracked so much. So, have you ever seen his sex tape? Uh, I, I, I know. Why would I go out of my way to? I've heard. Uh, I, my, I've heard one line from uh, the uh, uh, just about the. He belches at the end or something. Oh, he's complaining that he's eating too much food. That's like the, a... <laughs> the man does have. He has the dick the size of a deodorant can. Like he is hung, at, but oh. I, I think. And there's obvious reasons why he wanted to take down, but I think one of the main reasons why people want sex tapes taken down is because it's always boring, passionless sex. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, just fucking the day the Prince sex tape gets released, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in generations to come. That with the high tide mark? Oh, no, in generations to come, people were like, you know, he was also a musician, (laughs) (laughs) rather just not a master lover, (laughs) giving out O's like they're going out of fashion. (laughs) So, like, I, I think in general, when you make love to your partner make love as if you're being filmed without somebody <laughs> without <laughs> you knowing and it's got to live online forever and i think that's a good rule to live your life by isn't it oh it's a great rule to live by yeah but i, I but now you've mentioned that about like prince 
because all I just got that vision in my head. Then I was just seeing some fuzzy sort of VHS recording. He just comes in with some sweatpants on, just looks at his watch and goes, "We've got ten minutes. What do you reckon? Yeah, right. no, he would be a master lover. You reckon? Oh, oh small but heard feisty. His music, right? Like that's true. I yeah. have his. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Batman uh, soundtrack. Uh-huh. Um, carry on. Uh, so then he goes into his, his routine, and you know the rest, and he saves America from Iraq or whatever. Okay, but- <laughs> that was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just and then done. But the problem is down south. Yeah, they like their wrestling to be wrestling with capital apostrophe R A S S L I N G. Wrestling. Now that I almost spelt that correctly, I think almost. Like, <laughs> they don't like any of this cartoon shit. Or so, spelling correctly. Fuck you. <laughs> no, this is how they spell it down there. Don't <laughs> fucking <laughs> don't have a go at them for not, not being able to spell. So WCW was owned by zillionaire and creator of Captain Planet Ted Turner. He owned it. He funded it mostly because he loved wrestling and just wanted a wrestling promotion and was happy for it just to plot along. And, you know, didn't really have to make much money, but, you know, he was making money hand over fist doing other things. Uh, and I don't think he ever handled the day-to-day running of the uh, company. He always had other people doing it. Um, so we're up to uh, 1990, and I probably should tell you a little bit about Ric Flair. Ric Flair spent the majority of his career as a bad guy, and his gimmick was he was a playboy who did whatever he wanted. He would come out in robes, and his theme song was the uh, the uh, end music to 2001. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a god among men. Of course. Um, now that Flair, you're not going to be you know modest. There's nothing new in wrestling. His gimmick was just his take on previous wrestlers' gimmicks. It was an updated version of Gorgeous George or Buddy Rogers. Um, he was best known for wrestling hour-long matches that are really entertaining. Like, if, like he um, anyway. Let's not get sidetracked with that. Um, <laughs> And he had incredible promos, and he has so many catchphrases ranging from his most iconic, which is, to be the man, you have to beat the man, to the more obscure, it's easier to get on than to get off. <laughs> or or this one he would use while sexually harassing women, no hair, no flair. He would also refer to his penis as the ride Space Mountain. What, what you have to queue for hours is ultimately unsatisfying. Oldest ride, longest line. Uh, he used that in his later uh, years, and it was great. <laughs> um, All of these sound like t-shirts you could buy. Uh, and he had a stable of wrestlers which was called the Horsemen, they all had, you know, they would always have the world championship, the tag team belt, and, like, the US belt, and they would ensure that they all keep it, and they just all boozed up, they loved women, just ran wild. Um, But here's the thing with Ric Flair. Um, In real life, Jake the Snake Roberts, he wasn't into snakes. (laughs) In real life, Brutus the Barber Beefcake wasn't into cutting hair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fuck off, that one's not real. Yeah, he he's Hogan's best friend. <laughs> yeah. And had a career way longer than he should be because Hulk Hogan kept on getting him hired. Um <laughs> and he possibly gave Hulk Hogan a blow job once. But whatever, no shaming. You be you. Yeah. You be you. Allegedly, because the WWE is uh suing podcast now. I think you can see where this is going. 
in real life, Ric Flair was actually into partying and sleeping with as many women as possible. And because he, <laughs> he didn't have an obvious gimmick such as IRS, who was an evil tax man, or Tatanka, who was a Native American wrestler, who in real life, the guy was actually Native American. Oh, well, well, there you go, representation. Giving minorities an actual genuine hero. And Tatanka was over like crazy, even though his character was whatever. Anyway, um, because he didn't have a obvious gimmick, he was allowed to live his on-screen <laughs> gimmick 24-7 for approximately 40 fucking years. Jesus. Um and people allowed him to behave like this and do whatever he wanted. If anything, they expected it. Ooh, that's never good. Ric Flair is a very complex character, and we'll get into him. Now, at the time, an idiot called Jim Hurd took over WCW, and he thought it was a good idea to give their biggest draw a big pay cut, less screen time, and he wanted to change his appearance and ring name. He wanted to get Ric Flair to shave his hair, wear a diamond earring, and rename him to Spartacus. In order... <laughs> in order... Shut the microphone, so that's <laughs> In order to change with the times, John. You have to change. It's what the 90s times? now. It's the 90s. Uh... And granted, at this point, Ric Flair was coming up to the end of his prime... And they offered this to him, and he said, uh, fuck that. He got fired. <laughs> he went to the WWF, and then the fucking internet melted, because at the time, neither company would acknowledge the existence of each other. Ric Flair going to the WWF was like Batman turning up in an Avengers film. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it, it was that big. Uh, he also bought something with him to the WWF. Half a pound of weed? The WCW Uh-oh. championship belt. <gasps> because at the time, he, wrestlers had to pay a, a $25,000 deposit, which they never returned. So he was Why like, did they have to pay $25,000? What? To ensure somebody wouldn't take it to a different company. Oh, they, sorry. Right, okay, because yeah. Because the management was so lacking. Yeah. Like, they just didn't give him his deposit back. And he was like, fuck it. Well, this is mine. I'm taking it to the company. <laughs> like, <laughs> the reason they had the deposit. <laughs> that's how poorly run the company was. He treated uh, it like a pair of hotel room slippers. Well, I've paid, so I might as well take them. So, uh, he quickly became the WWF champion and would go on to um, have some of the best matches of his career. Now, I said the first wrestling I ever watched was WrestleMania eight, And his match against Macho Man Randy Savage was the moment I fell in love with wrestling, even though like I didn't quite understand the specifics of it, but the match was great. The story behind mm. the match was um, at the time, Macho Man was like the only wrestler who had a girlfriend who was this woman called Miss Elizabeth, who was a very elegant, beautiful, graceful woman. And you're like, how are you with Macho Man? <laughs> <laughs> and in real life, they met at a gym when she was a receptionist. The gimmick is Ric Flair came into the WWE and, they've, and because it was still very PG, they had to tiptoe around the fact that she was Rick's wink wink before she was Macho's wink wink and he had doctored up photos of them together oh shit yeah I remember this yeah I remember I was in randomly in um York we're going to the Jorvik Center and 
I distinctly remember someone in the room because you know, like when you yeah. go on camp, you have to share like a room with three kids, and it's always the kids you don't like. And one of them had wrestling magazines, and I remember there being a spread, yeah. and they're like, "We think these pictures are being doctored." And yeah. I remember at the time, even being quite young, going, it "Looks like there's just the same picture, and someone's just stood in them." And like, but you can see by the gate, it says RF, and it should be. I remember. Oh my god, I know something about wrestling. Yeah, so I'm so excited right now. And after he won, he was going to reveal some saucy photos of her. And I was like 12 or 13 at the time, and I was like, no, no, I think I'm on Ric Flair's side. Um, (laughs) But what's great about the match is, like, it's simple storytelling, and it makes sense within the context. So Ric Flair keeps on um, working. I forget if it was his right or left leg, Macho Man. And the story, even though Ric Flair cheats a little bit, the story presents Ric Flair as being the best wrestler. And there's no way Macho Man can definitively beat Ric Flair. And at the end, he's been working on the same leg the entire match. He grabs the leg, and Ric Flair being an arrogant person, his other gimmick is to woo. Like, woo! woo! Yeah, he grabs the leg, and he's got to finish off Macho Man, and he just takes a moment to boast about it. And he woos. He takes his eyes off him for a second. Macho Man gets his other leg up, kicks him in the head, rolls him up, but has to, for the pin, has to put the weight of his sore leg on the leg to roll him up. And it's like, Macho Man wasn't the better wrestler. He just wanted it more. Ric Flair didn't lose because he was the worst wrestler. He was arrogant. And like, it's just simple storytelling, which makes sense within that story and makes sense within that content. Woo! And it's still good. Um, And of course, a lot of ma- wrestling matches don't have plots and they're just kind of dudes doing flips um <laughs> anyway so um at this point wcw knew they fucked up big time uh because they had lost their biggest star mm. for no reason uh and you can even hear the crowd chanting we want flair during the 1991 pay-per-view the great american bash where i think he was going to wrestle with lex luger so they offered <laughs> him a crazy amount of money to return to which he declined. Yeah. Now, Heard got the arse in 1992 and Flair returned in 1993 and he returned for a few reasons. Mm. Uh, at the time, uh, the WWE were going to court over illegal steroid use, uh, which they totally did, allegedly, uh-uh. uh, even to the point that uh, Vince McMahon gave the company to his wife because he thought he was going to go to jail and he got off. Uh, it's a little it's a little bit like that time when uh, Jimmy Snooker killed his mistress uh, but because he was such a big draw, mm. allegedly Vince McMahon made it all go away with a big suitcase full of money. Then later on, like a couple of years ago, Snooker wrote his biography uh, and the events was uh, different to his uh, police statement. And the police was like, yeah, maybe we should uh, reopen this case. No. And then he died before it went to trial. Um. So, we're, so, okay, the WWE, they've got to focus on younger, cleaner wrestlers like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Mm-hmm. Bret Hart being my second favorite wrestler of all time and Shawn Michaels being my third favorite wrestler of all time. <laughs> and he knew, like, the days of Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, their days were limited. So, um, and I probably should point out, I don't think he ever did steroids or maybe he did them very briefly because I'm no expert, but I fucking know what an 80s roid body looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Hulk Hogan totally has one. It's like those guys who, like, their muscles look a bit squishy uh, and they have that bloated gut like Triple H totally has. Uh, and also, like, Flair's a very versatile wrestler. He can do everything from mat work to, like, 
spots off the top rope. So yeah. having extra muscles isn't really going to help him. And he was getting older and he wanted to keep on that number one position for longer. And he could, knew he could do that in his home of WCW rather than WWF. Um, and now, in 1993, WCW were getting serious about taking down the WWF. Uh, and at the time, this guy called Eric Bishop was running the company and he implemented um, some radical new ideas. A lot of them were really good, such as they had their flagship show go up against Raw, which is the w WWF's flagship yep. show, at the same time. <gasps> so it's 1993. You only can watch one live. You, oh. you know, you had to tape the other, which was a real problem in terms of ratings. Um, what they also did at the time, uh, the WWF was pre-taped while WCW went out live. So this is unimaginable now. They just gave out spoilers. What? <laughs> because WWF, oh, because they want people to tune in. They were, no, no, they gave out spoilers of what was happening in the WWF because oh. it was pre-taped. They sent somebody along to these matches to work out. Oh, uh, and it worked a lot, except that one time in 1999, when uh, and uh, Tony Schiavone sarcastically said, and I quote, "Fans, if you're even thinking about changing the channel to our, our competition, fans, do not." We understand that Mick Foley, who once wrestled here as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. Ha! That's going to put some butts on, on the seats, eh? Uh, and I need to point out, uh, Tony Schiavone was forced to say that. He didn't want to say that. He felt bad because he really liked Mick Foley. Um, now, John, guess how many people uh, wanted to see good old Mick Foley, quite literally the nicest guy in professional wrestling. A guy who's a perfect... He once produced a documentary about uh, men who like Santa Claus impersonators because he is a per Santa Claus impersonator. He's been helping... Um, he's been helping with a charity called Rain, which is uh, helps women who are victims of rape and sexual abuse okay. for over a decade now. Oh, he mans the phone. He saw, once auctioned all his classic ring gear to raise money for them because he wanted people to donate. And he thought, well, if people are going to give a lot of money, I need to dig yeah. Mick Foley, the single nicest guy in wrestling... Guess how many people wanted to see him win his first championship win against The Rock? <laughs> oh, I, I want to guess, but if it's going to make me sad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, 150,000. Oh, no, 600,000. Just over half a million people changed the channel. Wow. <laughs> because he's the nicest guy. That's a guy wrestling. And it's The Rock. Um, so... Let's go back to 1993. WWC is getting serious, so they bring Hogan over, who has a little bit of extra life, and his, his gimmick is running the course at this point. And he can, you know, he gets a little bit of extra life in this company, and that's going to turn him on. Oh, he's staring use, allegedly. Um, <laughs> so much allegedly. Uh, and at, at Hogan and Bishop were good mates at this time, so uh, Hogan got a bunch of his mates, who at this point were complete garbage older wrestlers hired. Right. Uh, so let's talk about wrestling in Japan. Um, so <laughs> okay, put the whiplash there from that topic change. Okay. Um, now there's different styles of wrestling, and at a, at a first glance, you probably can't tell the difference. But the style in Japan that's always been popular is called strong style. <laughs> kind of a bit on the nose, isn't it? What wrestling do you like? Strong style. Um, 
Do you know why it's called Strong Style? Because it's strong? Yeah, they don't fuck about. On the note. What's your favorite weakling, re- weakling yeah. style? No one likes weakling style. It's still a work, but it hurts a lot. And it's and I think it has to do with um, Japan's always had uh, foreign wrestlers come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually wrestlers work out the high spots, the mm. ending. But usually people call the match as it goes along. Yeah. If you can't speak the same language as the person you're wrestling, <laughs> you're going to end up clashing. <laughs> Things are going to go wrong. So we're in the 50s now, and the style of realistic wrestling was pioneered by um, Japanese first major wrestling superstar, which is a guy called Ricky Dozen, who defeated several high-profile American wrestlers in both Japan and the US. And he infused the country with national pride. Obviously, yeah. it's just after World War II, and they need something to feel good about. Uh, he wrestled people like Freddie Blassie uh, and Lou Fez, who I mentioned before, who was one of the most important wrestlers in the pre-Hogan Flair era. Now, and, and then this, is, this will come up a lot. At the right. time, the deal was, if you go to a different country to wrestle, you're coming in as the bad guy, you've got to lose big time, and you've got to lose to whoever, whoever the local hero is. Oh, okay, okay. You've got to go in there and like that episode of Futurama, <laughs> I don't understand your ways. <laughs> Look at my passport, it's different from yours. It's quite literally that. And they, if they ever come to your country, they'll return the favor. Um, <laughs> and in these matches, the Americans would cheat, and Ricky Dozan would overcome them by using traditional Japanese fighting moves. And winning on foreign soil was super rare. But Luthez gave that honor to Ricky Dozen in North America. I don't know, they're friends. He saw something in him and it, maybe it worked for the storyline. Uh, but that's how well-respected Ricky Dozen was internationally. Okay. And obviously in Japan, he was a mega celebrity and he went on to train the next generation of wrestlers. Uh, and like I, his, his matches were so popular that two of his matches rank in the top 10 watch television programs in Japan of all time. One of those matches being against Thez. So a running theme in this episode will be me pointing out bad gimmick matches. <laughs> bad gimmick matches. And what, what's classed as a gimmick match? Well, that time that Ricky Dozen was involved in the world's first MMA match. Right. He wasn't really. There was a bunch of them in the 30s. But for the sake of the story, <laughs> making a coherent of narrative, the first MMA match. Ah, uh, yes. Where he was set to fight uh, judo champion Masahiro Kimura. Uh, and in his career, Kimura had only ever lost four judo matches. Uh, at that point, Kimura was best known for beating Helio Gracie, who he defeated by using what's now known as the Kimura Lock, which is a super common move in MMA. Yeah, He did it in the second round and broke Gracie's arm. Now, does the name Helio Gracie mean anything to you? Uh, I think it's one of the elements in the periodic table. He, Helio, and his brother Carlos founded what's commonly known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is the bedrock style of MMA. Like, these guys are fucking important. Uh, And Helio's son's Royce was the first breakout star of this little company called UFC. 
I may have heard of that. He even won their very first pay-per-view, which was a round-robin competition, and their first pay-per-view was fucking awful. It was like, can a sumo wrestler beat a boxer? And like, I d- <laughs> Can the Flash outrun Superman? Yeah, that's what's going on. And I, I don't think the boxer fought... Like, I think, th- from memory, the boxer fought Hilo Gracie, and the boxer had a boxing glove on one hand and not on the other. And it was... It was it what? Was- <laughs> But but the the people who could wrestle ended up in the main event, which I think was um, Royce and um, his name's a Lu- uh, fucking his- anyway. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, so it was a round robin competition. Um, so the Gracie family helped make UFC what it is today. Mm-hmm. So okay, so we have this fight. So Ricky Dozen, who's a fake fighter, yep. is fighting the guy who beat one of the most influential fighters of all time. So the plan was to have a series of high-profile worked matches which they could tour Japan and make a lot of money. Bazinga. The first match would end in a draw, thus setting up the rest. Okay. So everything was set. Everyone was on board. The match starts and, you know, (laughs) Ricky Dazan thought to himself, Oh, fuck this, I want to win. <laughs> and just destroys the guy in a couple of minutes. And it's online. Like he, Far out. He goes down pretty fast. He went on to invest in several businesses and was a playboy and a womanizer. And he was known to be very generous with his money, but he was also a bit of a drinker. Okay. He died in 1963 when a member of a Yakuza sub-branch stepped on his shoe. What? He demanded an apology. Oh, no. But instead was stabbed to death. Compromise. Swings around about Senate, really. You know okay. I mean? So, his number one student was Antonio Inoki, who I mentioned in the intro. Yes. Who was of the similar mold of um, Ricky Dozen, but wasn't an idiot and was much, much cooler. And he went on, essentially, to be the Hulk Hogan of Japan, but he could actually wrestle on like Hulk Hogan. Um, and Allegedly. He had- <laughs> and he had metanatal idol good looks and he had this big chin that was made out of granite um, <laughs> that must have been really unfortunate and uh. so he started wrestling at the age of 17 where he wrestled in Japan yep. and the US and he came back to, to wrestle Japan yep. uh, where he worked for a few companies but his main home was the Japanese Wrestling Association in which he got fired in 1971 because he planned to take it over from within <laughs> which is okay <laughs> Because he went on to form the single most important Japanese wrestling promotion, uh, which is New Japan Pro Wrestling, Uh which to this day is the second biggest promotion in the world. And at the time of recording this, a lot of indie wrestlers actually prefer to go to New Japan over the WWE because they just get better matches. All right, okay. Um, So I could talk about all his classic matches. You could. But I'm going to talk about his silly ones. Yay! Um, Woo! So he worked on and off with the WWF, and they did treat him like he was a big deal, but huh? they just didn't know what to do with him. <laughs> uh, so they decided to give him his own belt, which was the very prestigious WWF <clears throat> World Martial Arts Heavyweight Championship belt, which he held for over a decade, <laughs> losing it once for 31 days. Uh, and I honestly can only ever remember him defending it once. Uh, and <laughs> the announcers were like a little bit lost to what to call his moves, even though he was just doing regular wrestling moves. There was a lot of like words like oriental chops and karate kicks. <laughs> um, so uh, 
talking about casual racism, um, <laughs> let's get sidetracked. Uh, and I want to talk to you about my favorite piece of casual racism in the WWF. Um, so there was a super heavyweight wrestler called Gorilla Monsoon who went on to be a part owner of the WWF. He, he was when Vince bought it off his father. Yeah, he was an owner with Vince, uh, and he was also a classic announcer. Uh, and he had one of my favorite turn of phrases, which me and my housemates use in this house, but not in the real world for obvious reasons. Um, for example, he used it when a wrestler would sneak up and hit another wrestler from behind. So I'm going to give you a, an example of this in a sentence. Are you going to smack me from behind? Now? No, you'll probably pick pick up the word Uh-oh. by this example. So, um, <laughs> so for example, it'd be used like Greg Valentine's coming up from behind. Oh dear, he's just Pearl Harbored Tito. No, <laughs> I don't think he's getting up for that one. <gasps> there yeah. is so much casual racism in wrestling, man. <laughs> Yeah, he would... Uh... Actually, that might not even be casual racism. I think that actually is just racism. Well... Oh. <laughs> I almost fell off my seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a phrase used a lot. But also, wow. Gorilla was like a good guy because also Jesse Ventura would use ethnic slurs, but they weren't really bad. Like, they didn't use the N-word or anything like that. <laughs> That's but okay, then. They used uh, words below that once... To get completely sidetracked, my favorite wrestling promo of all time is when Booker T, <laughs> him and his brother was uh, wrestling Hulk Hogan and somebody else, and Booker goes, we're coming to get you, N-word. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, I've seen that clip, and it's yeah. like, you can just see, the, oh, he said the word. <laughs> By the way, I, I feel like, um, for the remainder of this episode, I wish we had like a little sound button, because I feel like you've sidetracked that much, I feel like you need to have your own little like soundboard. Just like I just want that to happen. Because at some point, because going to sidetrack, sidetrack. Would you like to talk about that time that Antonio Inoki became the WWF World Champion, uh, which now the WWE pretend that never happened? Yeah, it happened. Sure. In 1979, in Japan against Bob Backlund. Now Backlund was the champ, and he was just this fucking howdy doody motherfucker, <laughs> all American boy. And he was the main champion before Hogan. We're getting sidetracked. Okay, so at the time, because they wanted <laughs> to get the belt off Backlund and put it on Hogan, but at the time, well, actually, this happened a couple of years after this, but at the time, you had to put it on a bad guy. So good guy, bad guy, good, you couldn't have two good guys fight. That'd be terrible. Crazy. So uh, Backlund dropped it to the Iron Sheik, who was managed by Freddie Blassie, who was one of the wrestlers who lost to Ricky Dozan. Right. Um but at the time, because he was managing the Iron Sheik, he was known as, hold on to your hat, John, what? Ayatollah Freddie Blassie. Fuck me. <laughs> and wore appropriate dress to his title. <laughs> and, My bow tie just spin then. And at the time, there was a large promotion called the American Wrestling Association. Mm-hmm which was the most dominant promotion before the WWE. And they stole a lot of their talent from there uh, in which the owner Vern Gagne wanted the Sheik to break Hogan's leg and bring the WWF belt back to the American Wrestling Association for a crazy amount of money. And despite the Iron Sheik being the most hated villain in the early eighties, Sheiky baby is a very loyal guy. Like, (laughs) Despite it being a very good financial mood too, and he was just loyal to the WWF, laid down, Hogan pinned him, 
and he literally helped change wrestling in the process. But now he hates Hogan and always talks about how he should have broken the legs of Jabroni. And because all of wrestling is connected, Ric Flair Mm. and Iron Sheik were actually rookies together, and they started out in the AWA. Uh, So back to Japan, what happens next can only be described as a filler episode. (laughs) (laughs) So Anoki defeated Buckland in a classic case of what happens overseas doesn't matter because how the fuck will anyone ever know about this booking where Anoki beats Buckland for the WWF championship belt? Do you know why, John? Go, tell me. Well, do you remember the rules? No. If you're a foreigner... Ah, sorry. Yes, let, let me let me take that one again. Yes, I do, Leslie. Uh, if you're a foreigner, you're the bad guy, full stop. And you're going to lose to the local Oh, you're always going to lose. Uh, and it also gave their rematch a little something extra as Anoki is, is spilling that big dick energy. <laughs> he's coming, hey! He, he's it's com- a callback! He, he's coming in as the champion of a foreign promotion. So in the rematch, uh, Tiger Jensen's interferes and allows Buckland to get the pin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it because of the interference, it was eventually declared a no contest. Because, do you know why? No. Because your local boy can't lose. Of course. It's simple fucking rules, John. But the problem is, <laughs> Anoki can't keep the belt. So he wins, but then he just vacates the belt and he's like, fuck this. I don't want this piece of American <laughs> shit. Uh, and then it was vacated, and which Buckland soon wins back. Yeah. Buckland was lucky he was wrestling Anoki and not Ric Flair. Do you know why? No. Because Ric Flair would have kept it and taken it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's such a simple rule, yet it's not, it's not sticking the landing with me. Okay. How about that time Anoki became an internet meme? What about that time? Unfortunately, his most viewed match of all time isn't a particularly good one. It's up against a Canadian strongman called the Great Antonio, and <laughs> that's a shit name. Well, if this doesn't ring bells, you've actually probably seen it. And the Great Antonio was a super heavyweight, and they were really popular at this time. And I don't get it, but he wasn't a good wrestler as much as he had presence. Right. The Great Antonio cut his teeth uh, in Stu Hart's promotion. Stu being the father of Bret Hart, my second favorite wrestler of all time <laughs> in Canada, where he would compete in a lot of two-on-one handicap matches. He even wrestled Terrible Ted, the wrestling bear. Oh, Terrible Ted, the wrestling bear. I remember him? I don't remember him. And in the 60s, he was getting some pretty big matches, and he even wrestled Ricky Dozan, who destroys him without too much trouble. The footage is online. <laughs> um, so he's brought back in 1977 to face Anoki uh-huh. in a bit of, I guess, of uh, in a bit of a retro match because, mm-hmm. you know, Anoki was Ricky Dozan's protege yeah um but it, at this time uh, the great antonio was in his mid-50s and in terrible shape but he didn't have to do much he was booked in handicap matches where he would wrestle between three and five wrestlers per match and they would sell for him and make him look like a million bucks and this all led to a big blow-off match against anoki mm-hmm. in which he would lose and it could not be simpler, yet he funks it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm going to use a lot of wrestling terms, and I guess it all makes sense within the context of these senses. but if you need anything explained, just yell out. Go. Okay. To start with, he doesn't sell any of Anoki's moves, which 
in and of itself isn't a huge deal. Is that when they assist the other person? No, no, no. So if I hit you, you sell it by falling back. So Anoki's punching him and he is just not moving. He like and in the, like at one point he does a drop kick. It's fucking move. It's a drop kick. <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, Antonio needs to look strong, but not selling the moves is very one-sided. It's actually yeah. not progressing the story in any meaningful way. So, and you can see during the match, Anoki is getting pissed off. Uh, so then Antonio gets Anoki in a hold where he starts clubbing the back of his neck and head. And he's making full contact because you can hear it over the crowd and the announcers and the hiss of the VHS tape it's been ripped oh. from. And in wrestling, accidents happen. It's mm. actually not a big deal. But a wrestler's number one job is to protect each other. Yeah. This wasn't an accident. This is just stupidity. Uh, so you watch it. Anoki blocks the clubs. He gets up and he has a face that just reads, motherfucker, this is on. Oh. Because it was like, what the fuck are you mm. doing? Within less than a minute, the great Antonio would be semi-conscious, bleeding from the <gasps> head. And Anoki <laughs> will have proven why he's the greatest of all time. <laughs> he destroys this motherfucker with a series of open hand slaps and kicks and gets him to the ground. And Anoki teaches him to do not fucking disrespect the art of wrestling. Do not disrespect the trust a wrestler puts into you for their safety. And do not think for a fucking second that any of those wrestlers that you quote unquote won against could not fucking destroy you. And with that, the great Antonio was literally beaten into retirement. He went back to Canada and was a bit of a joke and he died in poverty. Oh. So, Anoki retired in 1988. Uh, The following year, he entered into politics and was elected to the Japanese House of Councils as a representative of his own Sports and Peace Party, which was to promote wellness and health and politics through sports. Like when Schwarzenegger comes to Melbourne every year. Yeah, for bodybuilding. Yeah. So, Jonathan. Yes, Lazafin. It's one thing to beat up an over the hill strongman. Shit, yeah. But this is 1989. Oh, it's a different time. He needs to go after somebody his own size. Who could. Uh... Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> there was this one time when he unofficially went on a one man diplomatic mission and successfully negotiated the release of Japanese hostages from Saddam Hussein. Shut the front door. Just before the outbreak of the Gulf War, and did it via the medium of wrestling? Is, is, is Saddam, do you think, is that a good opponent for Anoki? That would be amazing. Also, when I came into this podcast this afternoon, I came in, wasn't expecting Saddam Hussein's name to be mentioned as much as it has been. Oh, it's, well, let's talk about it. On the 2nd of August, 1990, mm-hmm. Iraq invaded Kuwait. Uh, I remember. Hussein was holding thousands of foreign hostages, including 114 Japanese citizens. The hostages were spread out in strategic positions in order to deter mm-hmm. attacks. Yeah. Uh, so, without permission, 
and on his own money, Anoki goes over to Iraq in the <laughs> September of that year in order to negotiate the releases of the hostages. No. Uh, he negotiated with Saddam's sons, Uday, who's best known for uh, being shot to death alongside his brother, uh, Kusai. We all have to Kusain. achieve something in life. In 2003. Yeah, sad um, day for everyone. Oh. And Noki bought gifts of kimonos. And remember those little dancing flowers that were big at the time? Oh, with the sun. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it just wasn't enough to get the hostages released. Um, what if we got one of the Coke cans? Remember the Coke can ones yeah. that dance? <laughs> well, while not successful the first time, mm-hmm. it did open up a dialogue which led to more unsanctioned trips. Far out. Uh, at one trip, he converted to Islam, which he still practices today. I think he considers himself like he's. Uh, he's a Muslim and a Buddhist, I think. Um, and he was joined by former Japanese Prime Minister. Oh, I did not write his name phonetically, so this is going to be hard because I'm very dyslexic. Uh, you, Yasungo Eratus Sunny. We'll just refer to him as. Prime if we got that wrong, you can write just a self-addressed uh, envelope. Send it to Leslie's house, Leslie, in Melbourne. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm dyslexic. I'm defending you Yeah. from Twitter and Facebook. <clears throat> They're all a bunch of bastards. By the way, please like our page on Facebook. That's Fantastic Histories Facebook. Um, these talks were frowned by the international community. Ooh. Margaret Thatcher... Oh, great lady. <clears throat> ...flatly refused any form of official negotiation. But, you know, John, what the fuck does she know? You Like, after she sells out the Tokyo Dome... Maybe her opinion will matter. But right now, it's worth two things, John. Jack and shit. Which is kind of what all her policies were like, to be fair. Initially, Sonny got um, about 100 of the hostages free, yeah. only leaving 41. Anoki had a plan to get the rest. That's right. Go on. Wrestling. 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 He returned in December for a two-day mother-flippin' peace festival. <laughs> Where he bought, uh, which involved where he bought Japanese rock stars, soccer and baseball team, which is on brand for his party, mm-hmm. karate and judo experts, uh, traditional Japanese dramas, and professional wrestlers. He also bought over all the families of the hostages. <laughs> so, what did Saddam think of all of this? What did Saddam think of all this, Leslie? He thought, flip yeah, let's party. (laughs) Uh, Because he just thought it was positive PR. Like, he visited families to show the world that he wanted peace. Clearly, Jonathan. He's trying out. He's he's just this guy, you know? Well, you know, he wanted peace or was just a cynical manipulation of these people. We'll never know. Um, So, tensions got really strife because Anoki had actually been wrestling Hulk Hogan from the early 80s mm-hmm. and Saddam pulled him aside and said you know, you know do you know Hulk Hogan and Anoki's like yeah he's a good guy I've known him for a while and he was like it's like I'm there what the fuck why did he rip my flag up <laughs> okay yo yeah that's gonna ooh, okay that I told you that, that didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a great story had it not um so, 
it, the festival's over and no progress was made. Uh, they were literally, they're, they're all at the airport. They've got to fly back to Japan. And Inoki's hosts rush into the airport and urged him to stay a couple more days mm-hmm. in order to further discussions. And at this point, he was visibly moved and, of course, accept the offer. Mm. Um, he once again held talks with Uday and... Um, then he received official orders from his father to release the remaining 41 hostages. Mm-hmm. Um, now, John, mm-hmm. do you know what big dick energy is? Uh, I seem to recall we spent three and a half hours talking about big dick energy, mate. Big dick energy is when you get an apology from Saddam Hussein for holding your citizens longer no. than he should have. He apologized to him. And then the next day he made the announcement of the release. Like ah wow, that's guy, pretty awesome. This guy is working on big dick energy Shit. on a different level because he's also a cool guy. Like, and he seems very genuine in the idea of peace and reconciliation. Um, I just love this idea of Saddam the night before just going, I just I, I have the hostages, but I, he's, he's just so cool, man. Well, oh. you know, he did have a lot of other hostages. He did make an effort, so and it did look good for him on an inner of course yeah he was the only people coming to the table so he retained his seat in 1992 and was up for re-election in 95 but he was plagued by a number of scandals mainly involving embezzlement um and he need so he knew he had to do something big like i don't know reconciling north korea to japan ah where'd you go from there to be honest why not and due to an odd connection he has with North Korea, which I will reveal later in a very dramatic fashion. Ooh, spoilers! He could go into North Korea and talk to high-end officials as he pleased. Like Dennis Rodman. Pretty much. Uh, So he organized the Pyongyang International Sports and Cultural Festival for Peace. And Kimmy was over it, because you know why? Why? Kimmy loved pageantry. Oh, uh, he did he did strike me as the kind of guy that liked that kind of stuff. The the North Korean founder, Supreme yeah. Leader King Il Sun died in nineteen ninety two. Mm-hmm. Uh and so they wanted to make a real big point that, you know, they were still North Korea still kicking us and taking names. Um and of course being North Korea they did it in a really weird way that doesn't <laughs> translate well to anyone. Um <laughs> But you know what, John? That's a lie. They weren't doing very well. In fact, they were in the middle of the worst famine in their oh. country's history. So, Anoki needed to get some talent on board. Yeah. Which it wouldn't be a problem as, you know, you can get wrestlers from New Japan. But he wanted a universally recognized sports star to take with him. So, he reached out to Eric Bischoff, who was running WCW, yeah. because he was an acquaintance of Muhammad Ali through yeah. his connection at Turner Broadcasting. Muhammad Ali was also a massive wrestling fan who actually appeared, he's got a long history with wrestling, and appeared as a special guest referee yeah. in the main event of WrestleMania 1. But him reaching out to Muhammad Ali uh-huh. on the surface. Might be a bit weird, John. Do you know why? Uh, no. Because the Noki once bearded the fuck out of him and ended his career early in what is considered the world's second MMA match. <laughs> Shit. Want to get sidetracked, John? Sidetrack. <laughs> um, 
So let's go back to 1975. Yeah. And Ali was high, riding high from his uh, victory against Joe Fraser in the Thriller in Manila. Mm-hmm. And it was three matches and greatly considered the high point of his career. Um, and and I actually don't like Muhammad Ali that much. I know that's a very unpopular wow thing to things say. just hot take. Uh, so, but he was bragging to the the president of the Japanese Amateur Wrestling Association, and he said, and I quote, uh, "Isn't there any Oriental fighter who will challenge me? I'll give him a million dollars if he wins." And for him, that was just a bit of a throwaway line. He was yeah. just you know that was a part of his persona. But it was front page news in Japan. (laughs) 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 They ran the shit out of the story. And, oh, I wonder who accepted. Oh, that's right, our boy. (laughs) Anoki. Sat there. Where did they get a load of me? Yeah. And and in the US, it wasn't received seriously. They just thought it was just attention-seeking theatrics. But Him and Apollo Creed just big talkers. Just (laughs) let it go. (laughs) But shit got real when Anoki and his backers put 10 million dollars on the table uh and ali was looking to retire he's getting to the end of his career mm-hmm. and he was burning through cash due to a lot of divorces and you know just you know just needing money so it was a nice chunk of change to retire on and uh like john what's the worst that can happen uh, like wrestling's fake right yeah totally man you know what i'm saying um anoki had just had a worked MMA match with it because it's not the second real time with a judo champion leading up to the match, which Ali like he thought it would be scripted. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, he just went like I'll go over there, I'll do this wrestling event because he loves wrestling. What's the harm? What's the harm? Because everything's related. Uh, do you know who is his manager for this match? Vince McMahon. We've mentioned him twice already. God. Damn it, we've mentioned a lot of people, Leslie. No, take it from me. Freddie Blassie. Hey, Freddie! <laughs> um, and while we're talking about wrestling, do you know uh, Mama Hadley stole all of his catchphrases? Oh, really? Yeah. Is this why you've got deep hated resentment for Muhammad Ali? No, I just don't... Th- like, I like Muhammad Ali. His persona, like, and Muhammad Ali does have a persona. I'm not saying that's bad because he gets that you can't be an athlete. You need that emotional connection. And it's the problem the UFC is facing at the moment is mm-hmm. they've got a lot of fighters that just look like a meat pie. They can't talk. <laughs> you know, they can't talk. They can't do morning TV. And you need that connection. Yeah. And he got that, and that's great. I just don't like him as much as other people. So um, he stole all of his catchphrases from this wrestler called Gorgeous George, who was patient zero. Gorgeous George was the first wrestler that had a gimmick and okay. understood that if you can get people to hate him, they're going to pay to see somebody beat him up. Ah, the um, Oscar Wilde treatment. So it was all set. Uh, and then there's several versions of the story, which I won't go into, but I'll just streamline it for the sake of convenience. Okay, Ali thought it was going to be a work match, and at the last moment, it was thrown at him that he was going to lose, mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't want to do it because he thought it would disgrace his boxing legacy. because, you know, Enoki's An- version of accounts that he said it was always going to be legit, uh, but when Ali got to Japan and uh, saw Ali training <laughs> and taken motherfuckers to the ground with ground and pound, <laughs> he knew he was going to get hurt and humiliated and wanted out. Um, but and but who knows and who cares? But at the last minute, 
they implemented a lot of dumb rules that no they're not even dumb rules they implemented weird rules that i don't think the crowd really understood okay like for example uh anoki could only pin ali ali could only knock out anoki but um anoki was like a lot of his moves were banned it was hard for him to really do anything oh. offensive uh and if Ali got into trouble if he held the ropes, whatever move was broken. And yeah. that, that's all we like, that's all I don't think those rules were really advertised. So the crowd spent most of it just going, <laughs> What the fuck's going on here? It's all um, wrestle. And also because like if Anoki got Ali to the ground, it would have been over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I'm going a little bit off memory here. Uh so it wasn't a pay-per-view, it was mm-hmm. a thing called closed circuit TV, which was an archaic version of pay-per-view. Uh, and from memory, there was only one match on before the Ali Anoki fight. Yeah. It was Andre the Giant versus Chuck Webner. <laughs> now, stop me if you've heard this one before. I will. Webner was a uh, he was a down on his luck club fighter who was given a one in a million chance to fight against the world champion and it was thought as a bit of a gimmick match and no one thought Webner stood a chance uh, the champ being Muhammad Ali yeah uh, and he shocked the world when he knocked Ali to the ground and made it up until the closing seconds of the last round uh, and there's there's been a, a movie based off him. There was I I yes. It was called Webner, and I I think it was Lee Schreiber played him. He yes, came a couple of years ago. It's really good. I like it. And there's also one at the moment with Zach Gowan. Um, so it was a worked boxer versus wrestler mm-hmm. match where it ended where Andre the Giant literally just threw him out of the ring. <laughs> Webner would go on to wrestle a bear, but sadly not terrible Ted. He wrestled <laughs> terrible Ted's contemporary. Victor the Wrestling Bear, because obviously, <laughs> who else would he wrestle? Terrible Ted lives in Canada. He doesn't. He doesn't. Tour, he doesn't go down to America for matches. Um, anyway, so the match itself is fucking terrible because Anoki spends the majority of the match laying down on the ground yeah. because he can't compete against Ali with striking, and it's just a boring match, and I didn't even bother to rewatch it. And um, but he he keeps on kicking Ali. I think he got like something like around like 120 leg strikes in. Wow! Only up until the last couple of rounds, Ali decides to block these things, <laughs> uh, which is anyway like it, it could have been a great opportunity to actually showcase wrestling, uh, because. Anoki was a legit martial artist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and it ended <laughs> in, uh, conveniently, it ends in a draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Uh, who would have guessed? Anoki gave Ali blood clots in which it fucked up his leg and pretty oh. much ended his career early, but he was looking to retire anyway. Yeah. Um, but th- a really important idea came out of this match. Um, it was the idea of Muhammad Ali, he was a specialist fighter that only can fight in a certain way. Mm -hmm. While Anoki had a solid game. Mm. Like he could do, he wasn't the greatest at striking, but he was pretty okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you can actually see the legacy of this idea. Like, and after this match, um, kicking became more popular in kickboxing. And you can see the legacy of MMA starting in Japan. And then it, transferring to the US uh, and like one of the main like for a lack of a better word when I mentioned Ric Flair had a stable called the um, Horseman yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, 
the MMA version of a stable was called the Lion's Den, uh, <laughs> which was um, was founded by Ken Shamrock, which was the name I couldn't remember before. And it was the idea that they had to be great at every single fighting style. They right, okay. Be specialists. Uh, and then, yeah, as I forgot his name before, Shamrock was ended up being in the main event with Gracie in the yep. first ever UFC pay-per-view. Mm. So you can see this actual legacy from this gimmick match. People got, while well, the match was terrible, but ideas came out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of splinters, sort of fractions, splinters through them all. That's wow. And once again, I couldn't find a reference. I just remember this from memory that um, WWF announcer Gorilla Monsoon actually bought the US rights to it and he lost a lot of money. Or you could say he got Pearl Harvard. <laughs> no, please don't do that one. But I actually think it did pretty well. I just could like, I, I, what, uh, anyway. So, as I mentioned before, um, uh, Gorilla Monsoon was a super heavyweight wrestler before he was an announcer. And this may shock you, Gorilla Monsoon and Muhammad Ali had a match in order to promote this Anoki. Uh, uh, because this is because all of wrestling is connected. And, uh, <laughs> and Ali loses, which is stupid. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, and I think they only end up paying Ali like a third of what they promised. Blah, blah, oh, blah, blah, really? Blah. So, it's weird that like 20 years later, he would go, Hey, remember me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I ended your career early. We had that really awful match. Hey. Hey. Want to come to North Korea? And Ali was like, Yes, I do. <laughs> the dude did not even have to blink. He was like, yes, this isn't <laughs> happening again. So Eric Bischoff, um, and then they talked about maybe getting WCW wrestlers mm-hmm, on the card. Anoki mm-hmm. um, wanted one man for the main event, a man that screamed America, a man that once ripped apart an Iraqi flag, Hulk Hogan. So they asked him to which his deodorant-sized dick, deodorant-sized dick, shriveled up to a peanut, and he said no because Allegedly. and th- and we'll talk about it later. Hogan isn't the right person for this match. Okay, so because Hogan only had two real matches, which is Hogan wins or Hogan loses by a split second, and damn straight he isn't going to leave this ring. He's got a he's it's, if if it's WrestleMania five and he's just lost to the Ultimate Warrior and Ultimate Warrior has walked away with the Intercontinental Title and the WWE Championship Belt, you know Hogan's got to go get that belt from him and kind of milk it up and get sympathy and it's like you get out of that fucking ring, Hogan, it's <laughs> Ultimate Warrior. You don't fuck you fuck off. You go back to the it's the Ultimate. He should be soaking all this up. But we've all just seen a window into Leslie's youth then, just well, screaming at the TV in the living room. I have a few problems with Hulk Hogan. The least of it being he said the N word <laughs> when he was taped when he wasn't knowing. I don't think it was in the sex tape. It was something else. But um, <laughs> that's a that's a heavy sex tape with all that going on. But when he worked in Japan, as I said before, he wrestled Anoki since the '80s. Mm. He wrestled a more competitive style. Um, but you know, it still makes him racist. That's never <laughs> gonna leave him. Um, <laughs> So Anoki wanted him because he knew they could put on a good match together. And Hogan was actually a huge star in Japan uh, before he went to the WWF. He actually quit the WWF when it was still ran by Vince McMahon Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he wanted to be a part of the world's 
third MMA match against boxing heavyweight champion Rocky Balboa. Um, it was going to be like a gimmick match when they were raising money for like a boys club. Oh, okay. This? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, mm, refresh my memory. Well, it, it was pretty much, it was just a boxer versus wrestler match. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, at the last second, so he quit over it, but then he was replaced by the last moment by this wrestler called Thunderlips. See, that is also a stupid name, but I love it so much. Well, Hogan went to Japan, became a big star, returned, works for the AWA, then before going to the WWF. Yeah. Anyway, they asked <clears throat> Ric Flair, and you know what? Oh, Ric Flair's deodorant-sized dick flared up the size of a horse. He was so <laughs> fucking excited to go to North Korea because this is who Ric Flair is. Woo! Um, and also, it's the opposite. Flair and Inoki had never wrestled, despite being icons of their sport. North American and Japanese companies have relationships. And yeah. like at one point, the WWF had a relationship with New Japan, mm. but it changes. And... Rick, every time Rick Flair went to Japan, the WCW had a relationship with a different company. So he was, they were never working with New Japan at the same time. So they knew who each other were, but they never met. Um, but, you know, having two of the greatest wrestlers of all time wrestling in North Korea in their only match what? makes it the whole thing all the more interesting. And I'll talk about their wrestling styles a little bit later. But Flair did have his doubts. Um, and at the time, he was this was prime flair. He was very well connected. Uh, and he talked to a few senators and friends in the government, and they all told him not to go. But, John? Leslie? What the fuck do they know? What do they know, Leslie? Have, have they ever survived a plane crash, broke their back in three places, got told that they will never wrestle again, and was in the ring within eight months, then go on to be a 16-time world champion, when maybe they start fucking doing that, they can give the nature boy advice. How about then? So they, they didn't, so he went. And I have to point out, 16-time world champions, but it could be more like 25. He's won this belt so many fucking times. <laughs> they uh, lost count. Um... So Bischoff uh, got a lot of WCW wrestlers on the card, but you know he was a little bit worried about sending so much high-profile talent mm -hmm. to the Hermit Kingdom. <laughs> so he uh, he had friends because he worked in the media. He had friends at CNN, and they asked him, you know, what's the uh, what's the worst that's going to happen? And they said, you know, maybe the UF government, you know, they'll just probably pull you aside going where the fuck you go there and you know probably won't get arrested or anything like that <laughs> so he was like okay pack my bags going and you know what he didn't tell anyone at turner broadcasting you know just in case they weren't feeling it john <laughs> <laughs> just in case they'd have to have a little chat about what's going on just in case oh, you want to go to north korea with uh, all our main stars you know yeah. you okay. to dave and hr does dave know dave knows are you sure i don't think dave knows dave does know yeah, and it's amazing how this ever happened. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, nowadays that... that yeah, I'm just going to go. Um, so, let's talk about all the American wrestlers who are on the card. Leslie, let's. Well, number one is world-famous child murderer Chris Benoit. Woo! It's complicated. Question mark? 
<laughs> it's complicated, but over the course of a weekend, he killed his partner, his son, and himself. And the next episode of Raw was dedicated to him with people sharing moments uh, and, you know, his good friends wrestled each other. And I don't know if this part's real, but according to the story, according to the mythos, the WWE found out in the middle of the fucking show that because at this point they thought he'd been killed by somebody yeah, else. Yeah, 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 yeah. At, at the middle of the show, they found that he killed his child and wife. That's the, the version I've heard, yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't verify it, but it's just the better story because, you know, it's it's a history podcast, so of course we have to go to the better, better version of the story. I always go for the better version. I always go for the more delightful version. Um, and then Vince McMahon would later address the WWE audience where he said, like, listen, we just got to erase him from history. Like, and they did because, sure, like, he's a great wrestler, but yeah. fuck that. Uh, so and he will never be downloadable content on any of the wrestling computer games in the future. No, you can, like, they, they have their own SVOD service and you can still see his matches, mm. uh, but they're not, you know, he doesn't have a link or a profile on their website. Oh, okay. So it's like. He's still there, but they're never going to promote him because. Well, why would you? He was a. Uh... He's a child murdering son of a bitch. Yeah, but he did have a lot of good managers. <laughs> and all these wrestlers w- had wrestled in New Japan at one point. So mm. that's also why Anoki thought, nah, they yeah, knew them. Okay, so to Cold Scorpio, who's most famous for his pimp character he'd had in the WWE, Flash Funk. His who ca- pimp character. Who came out in a zoot suit and hookers. Fuck me. Because. Can you name that African-American witch doctor? Can you name that African-American who played a pimp? Which one? Oh, my God. And his father would actually spar with Ali in their early days. Scott Norton, who, fuck, he's just a big, boring pile of muscles. Yeah, There's no real reason to remember him. Oh, my goodness. So fucking the Steiner brothers. Fuck. Um... They were like, <laughs> you said that as if like, they owe you money. You're like, fucking Steiner Brothers. Um, they were just, they're big roidy dudes, right. uh, but they did a lot of like high flying moves. Uh, Scott Steiner is also a legit badass. Now, about 10 years ago, there was this period where Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, they got on like social media for the first time. And it was so sad. They just started calling each other out. And it's like, fuck off, old man. No one cares. <laughs> But Hogan called out Scott Steiner, which he quickly backtracked because Steiner's actually the type of dude that will rock up to your house. <laughs> Ding and, dong. Yeah. And Steiner is still in great shape and he owns a Shoney's, which is like a NAF American chain restaurant. Okay. <laughs> like he legit owns one. Um, Not like high class, like the Wahlburgers. In the mid-noughties, he went to the WWE and mm. he was given a big push. And at this point, they were trying to be really family friendly. Uh, and he, he got a bigger push than he actually deserved. And um, and he was in a match with... There was a wrestler called Test. And I can't remember... He had a valet and I can't remember her name. Uh, but there's one point... He's not on mic, but you can the, the camera outside of the ring can pick up what he says. And once again, they're trying to be... This is when they, they first started being family friendly. Yeah. Uh, he yells at the woman, looks down and says, Are you going to suck my dick? No. Like, he just doesn't give a fuck. He is that off. He's going to North Korea. He tells a woman in a family-friendly program to suck his dick and looks... Let's... Um, but he is 
best known for this promo. And I have to point out, okay, so there's a lot of things I have to set up. So the promo is for, um, he was working at TNA, which was another wrestling company. Yes, I know. Total nonstop action. Oh, sorry. And he was promoting the pay-per-view Sacrifice, in which he was in a three-way between Kurt Angle and Samoan Joe. And in the promo, it sounds like Senor Joe. (laughs) So I'm going to play the promo. Okay. Samoan Joe. Was he actually Samoan? Yeah. He's, oh, thank God. He is literally, like, there's two Samoan families in wrestling. That 99% that belongs to the Rocks family, because mm. they're all cousins, and whatever fucking family Samoan Joe's in. <laughs> okay, our sound isn't working, so we're, I have to put up this up against a microphone. We are a high-tech corporation. Okay. So Go. This, this, this I'm, is amazing. I'm right? ready. You know, they say all men are created equal, but you look at me and you look at small Joe and you can see that statement is not true. See, normally if you go one-on-one with another wrestler, you got a 50-50 chance of winning. But I'm a genetic freak and I'm not normal. So you got a 25% at best at beating me. And then you add Kurt Angle to the mix, your chances of winning drastically go down. See, the three-way at sacrifice, you got a 33 and a third chance of winning. But I, I got a 66 and two-thirds chance of winning because Kurt Angle knows he can't beat me and he's not even going to try. So, Samoa Joe, you take your 33 and a third chance minus my 25% chance and you got an eight and a third chance of winning at sacrifice. But then you take my 75% chance of winning if we used to go one-on-one and then add 66 and two-thirds percents, I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning at sacrifice. See, Joe, the numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at sacrifice. <laughs> um, was cocaine used a lot during uh, the wrestling at this time period? Later? Oh, I, I don't. It, it, it was allegedly. Probably, it was probably about ten years ago when he cut this promo. Fucking hell! Um, <laughs> just, and a fur and then you carry the one, and you'll find it. Right there. <laughs> Because it's like, uh, I'm going to win via mass. <laughs> it feels like one of those ones which you knew as he was saying it out loud. He's like, yeah, this sounds great. Watch it the, watch the next day. Oh, I did a lot of maths there. Yeah. But once again, these are the type of people they're bringing with them. A murderer, a, a, a method- predator, and a, a mathematician. mathematician. <laughs> oh. Um, if anyone's uh, for those people listening at home, um, if you could actually re, uh, listen to that and see if his maths work out, I no, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't come close. Okay, so are you sure? Um, so they also had Road Warrior Hawk, who uh, I don't, th- I don't know if at this point, but he ended up being a raging alcoholic, uh, so much that the WWE decided to use that a part of a storyline because they're classy, hey. Um, <laughs> And there was a bunch of Japanese wrestlers who I don't really know that well. And I guess, you know, they were a less of a duck out of water because, and I don't really have any good stories. And I don't think they've really shared anything good, but there was a lot more wrestlers on it. And of course, at this point, uh, Ali was suffering from the first stages of Parkinson's Mm. uh, and he couldn't talk loudly and some days were better than others. But all in all, everyone said he was just an utter joy to be around. And in the airport, uh, he kept everyone's spirits high by doing magic tricks, and he got guys to cut promos on him, and he fucking loved it, and he just wanted to talk wrestling. Uh, And at at this point, they were told that 
what what they said because mm. they were going to be bugged at all times. This becomes important later. So they get to Japan with no problems, uh, and the Japanese government had to work with the North Korean government, uh, and they allowed them to be picked up by a Korean military transport plane, which was so old they think it was from World War Two. Far out. No seat belts, and not really built for massive roidy wrestlers. <laughs> And they said that it had air pockets in which they could see the ground. But worst of all, they served them hot beer. Sons of bitches. Fuck Isn't it. this now the point, Leslie, where you make a joke about me being from a country that serves warm beer? I'll leave the door open for you, that one. You're all animals. <laughs> and like, I'm guessing it would have taken about two to three nerve-wracking hours <laughs> to get there. <laughs> to- Three to four rattly hot beer hours. Yeah, like, um, and th- when they approached Bischoff, Eric Bischoff, the guy that was running WCW mm-hmm. at the time, looked at the plane and he just said it was a desert. There was no plant life, no animals, just a void. And he started to worry. Yeah. Um, and then they met, but they made it to civilization, which was just gray, lifeless cities uh, with huge roads, which mm. are actually designed so fighter planes can take off on them. <laughs> Uh, and very few cars. And like all of these guys had been to Japan, so Asian cultures weren't yeah, yeah, yeah. foreign to them. But yeah, even they were like, what the fuck is this? Uh, and then they landed. Um, well, they learned later that a lot of the buildings were empty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they land and they go to the airport and they literally saw people running around turning on lights only half of which worked because it looked like no one had used this airport for years. And they received a very formal choreographed greeting and were separated into two groups and assigned a handler whose job was to chaperone and and educate them about North (laughs) Korean culture. And they attempted this big dick energy move by taking all their passports, which, you know... Whatever. (laughs) They don't have a US embassy they can go to. They can't exactly get a flight out of the country. It's like, okay, like their passports are worthless anyway. (laughs) There's only been kind of oral retellings of what happened. Mm -hmm. So I think I've got it in a chronological order, but I could be wrong. Um, So they were taking on a tour where they paid homage to Kim Il-sung, the um, founder of North Korea, Mm -hmm. which was obviously done for publicity. Uh, And the first thing they noticed was how fucking old all the cameras were. Oh, really? (laughs) Like 1930s flashbulb kind of. uh, And they saw people on their knees wailing and crying over Sung's grave. Uh, They were taken to uh, uh, military uh, memorials where they learned that Hiroshima and Nagasawa never happened. And oh. North Korea won World War II. And they learned all about the evils of North America. Um, and Bischoff did not want to give them any reason to think that they, he doubted what they were saying. Mm. But at the same time, he didn't want to be sympathetic. So he would often give an answer along the lines of, uh, you know, I was born after the war. I don't really know was a nasty thing. <laughs> Nicely played. Yeah, it was. Oh. And on the way to locations, uh, Rick Skiner, the brother of the, you got a 33rd and a 3rd chance, Kurt Angle, <laughs> Senior Joe. That's my favorite clip ever. One that's my ringtone. Remember pe- seeing people working in the fields in suits. Uh, and they had to wear suits the entire time, which is great because wrestlers don't fucking fit in suits. Um, I actually know someone who's been to North Korea and they had to wear a suit. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like the entire time. It's like... um, so during the tour, they were politely asked mm-hmm. not to rape any of their women. But that's, you know, that's at least they asked politely. Uh, which obviously played in the way that they were taught to think about Americans. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't help them that they looked exactly like they thought they would. Big, massive monsters. Uh, the tour went down in Pyongyang, where they stayed two days before performing. Uh, and once again, it was just described as a big, empty city with wide streets and no cars. Uh, they stayed in a, a hotel where they had massive apartment-sized rooms mm. that all smelt a little damp. Mm. Uh, and much like the airport, they just felt like this hotel hadn't been used in quite a while. At the time, North Korea had two TV channels. One where you can learn about the great leader, Kim Jong-il. Mm-hmm. The second one being... It just had janky black and white wrestling because, you know, so the wrestlers could watch wrestlings because that's what wrestlers watch. That's what you like watching, isn't it? Wrestling. You love it. Uh, They also found out the government had printed up new money, which featured Antonio Inoki. No. It's it's a clue. His connection will be revealed later. Um, But it's mysterious. Why is he on money? Then that night, they were taken to a rotating restaurant that was on top of the hotel, uh, in which Ric Flair freaked out a bit. (laughs) (laughs) He he did not think they were going back alive. And Eric Bischoff said, um, Ric Flair did really... Well, it was the 90s. What did people really know about North Korea? Apart from the fact that it was a bit mysterious. And if these guys actually knew, they wouldn't have went in a million fucking years. (laughs) Which I think is true. Well, they couldn't leave the hotel unsupervised and they just played cards a lot. They worked out and they ate and drank like kings. But here's the thing, like nothing actually, nothing terrible happens over the next two days. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember, little things felt greater than they were. It's just that constant pressure of being looked at by a wild erratic government. And, yeah, once again, small things that wouldn't be an issue in North America felt much bigger here. So everything was exaggerated. Okay, okay, okay. Um, And also the doubt that they might not actually ever leave. (laughs) And also their wrestlers, if they could make good decisions about their lives, they wouldn't be wrestlers. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day, they had a uh, a barbecue in a park where the Steiner brothers were unhappy about the quality of meat in the country. This was due to the famine. Scott Steiner declared, I can't eat this shit. <laughs> to which everyone said, for fuck's sakes, mate, remember where you are. And the guy said, like, all the food tasted a bit off except the fruit. And once again, like, they've been to Japan. Like, food kind of tastes a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. But there was something. It was just something. They weren't being poisoned. It was the famine. Um, And I think also, like, I don't know if if these guys were using anything. But at Mm. this point, they would be crashing. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I actually know a guy who uh, worked in South Korea for about a close to two years 18 months and ate a lot of south korean food yeah. um he said it was really weird coming back to australia he was like oh, i'm gonna get mcdonald's i'm gonna have proper australian mcdonald's he yeah. said and i just felt ill he's oh, yeah. adapted so much to, to 
Korean food. It was just like, <sighs> his body's like, nah, what is this? I go to, as you know, I go to South Korea every year for work and I just eat for days. <laughs> like, oh, I've yeah. seen your live feed. <laughs> yeah. So that night they had an event in the Capitol building where the food was really good and they were entertained by traditional dancing and music. Yeah. And they said the stagecraft was really high. They were pulling off all these crazy costume changes. Uh, it was so good. Like they really thought it was it was a great night. It was so good that um, Scott Steiner, <laughs> being an inquisitive little egg he is, oh god, went backstage to see how they were doing it. They didn't let him in. No one was raped, and he was escorted back to his table, where everyone said, "For fuck's sake, mate, remember where well, you are." Well, this was for everyone. While this was happening, I think Flair and Ali were in a private dinner somewhere in the Capitol building Mm. uh, with um, high-ranking officials. Uh, And at one point, the officials were bragging about at any point that they could destroy them if they wanted. And Muhammad Ali said, Hey, Scott Steiner, want to hold my beer? (laughs) And said, No wonder we hate you son of a bitches. Shit. And everyone said... For fuck's sake, oh, it's Muhammad Ali. I guess we give him a pass. We can kill these other wrestlers. <laughs> Fucking, if we kill Muhammad Ali, that's going to be bad news. Um, and they did. Rick Flair. We're going to talk about this. Rick Flair just said it was just awkward, and then just people just went on. Uh, yeah, only he can get away with that stuff. Jeez. So the next morning, Eric Bischoff goes for a run, and it's at 5 a.m., and they didn't have anything on until 10. So their minders went around. So he actually escaped yeah. them. Uh, And it was still dark, and it was eerie as fuck. And no one was around, and then all of a sudden, the streets started filling up with people going to work. All of them terrified, because this was the first white fucker they've ever seen, and they believe in everything their government's told them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So, like, Eric Bischoff doesn't know, but he thinks that he managed to rape at least 50 women and was eating the flesh off the bones of several young children before his handlers found him. Yeah? No, that didn't happen. <laughs> no. This no. took a dark fucking turn. No, because that... Yeah, no. Yeah, I know, no, I know. <laughs> no, everyone was scared of him, so he went back to his fucking hotel. <laughs> Imagine they're just walking around going, why is everyone staring at me? I, what? And then he got back where his handler read the right act to him. And, you know, things could be worse. They get worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they get transported everywhere via bus, except Flair and Ali, who got driven around in a bat- battled old Mercedes-Benz. At first, Hawk, Road Warrior Hawk, would join them. And, like, Hawk being the most senior wrestler next to Flair. Um, so, you know, the wrestler, they've got this hierarchy. You know, sometimes there's only... Um, change rooms that the senior wrestlers can go to. So, you know, like, it wasn't out of line that he joined them in the Mercedes. Uh, And sometimes he would ride in the bus. And in terms of being a wrestler, he was one of the better wrestlers out of all of them. Mm. Um, He was up there with Flair and Anoki. Um, But uh, Chris Benoit would end up being probably the best wrestler than any of them combined. Do you know, do you want to know a fun fact about Chris Benoit? I'd love to have a fun fact about Chris Benoit. He would go on to murder 100% more children than anyone else on that trip. 100% 
being his son and 100% being his son who was disabled called Daniel. And like, I think I can genuinely speak for every wrestling fan. You know, our hearts bleeds for Daniel and we're hoping he's resting in peace somewhere. And fucking, we hope Chris Benbar never rests in peace. Fucking A. Um, so, so everyone, that was no, a fun fact. Yeah, that was fun. So no one was too bothered by Hawk riding with them. So one day he decided to get on the bus uh, and Rick it, like Rick was looking around for someone and he thought, oh, maybe he thought he was looking for him because they were riding together. And two cold Scorpio said, fuck that pussy, let him ride by himself. <laughs> and Flair was a bit of a mentor to Hawk, so he did not go down well. And Hawk dropped the M-bomb, and it was on. <gasps> I have to point out, they're there for a peace festival. <laughs> and everyone agrees that Two Cold started it, and it was needless. Fucking didn't have to happen. Hawk threw the first punch, but Two Cold came off better. Um, and he just said, like, everyone in this bus was embarrassed that this happened. Uh, and Two Cold personally went up to everyone and apologized. Oh, that's for good it. of them. Because, you know, they're there for a reason. and um, But I think this is happening because just tensions are rising. Hmm. Like, you're grand- in a foreign place, you don't know where you are, you're being treated in a way that it's kind of, you're okay with, but also it's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah. And I just think they just wanted to get out over and go back home. Mm. During their time there, Scott Norton had been trying to call his wife. Uh, and of course, you can't call directly from North Korea to North America. You have mm. to go via China. And apparently, like, the North Korean operator was in the basement. So he would have to... Anyway, he would um, have to connect the call and Scott Steiner would have to go from the basement up to his room because, I don't know, he had to dial the number or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he was on this seventh floor and the elevators were slow. And by the time he got to the room, his wife would hang up and he missed the call. And, you know, he did that a few times. But one night <laughs> he finally got through and his partner blasted him, accusing him of going out and partying. Uh, and like, and I don't like, I don't want to throw shit at Scott Norton, but as a general rule in this time period, don't leave your girlfriend or your drugs near a wrestler. <laughs> And he might have had a behavior of cheating on her. I don't know. Like, it, it could be justified. It could not. Yeah. Um, and she was getting madder and madder. Uh, and he ended up exploding and saying, you don't understand what kind of shithole we're in. The phone goes dead. Ooh. Several moments later, there's a hard knock on his door. He opens and the military bust in. No. Remember where you are. So I probably should point out Norden is probably the biggest guy in this trip. He's yeah. he's the size of two normal humans, that being four normal North Koreans. <laughs> and with that said, several men with guns escorted him to an underground location and no one knew he was gone. No. And he um and they asked him why he would say such a thing. And he tells them that he had an argument with his wife. And they did not believe him. Do you know why? Why? Because North Korean women do not argue. Norton describes an additional man coming into the room. uh, And he knew this guy met business. Who uh, spent time talking to his handler and just looked at him with disgust. And he thought he was going to die. And he goes over it all again. uh, And he was told he can't say no more bad things about North Korea. And he was taken to his room. And then he tried to 
arranged to call back his wife who um, hang up on him, but his mm. phone was dead. And yeah. They also, Fuck. they also stopped cleaning his room. Well, that's oh. a one out of five review on TripAdvisor. So finally. Bloody hell. Night one. So this is a two night event. Uh, oh, God. Norton and Flair take a limo to the event. Uh, and Norton was headlining the first night. Right. Uh, and they saw a line longer than either of them could ever imagine. And Ric Flair remarks, he goes, I knew it. We're going to pack out this house. <laughs> We're really good at draw. And the driver asked them what the word draw means. Because once again, like wrestling has all this weird terminology. And Rick explained that it, it, it's a wrestling word that meant people were going to come to see them. And the driver explained that no one was coming to see them. They were all forced. Or if they don't, they're going to get a bullet in the head. Jeez. Um, so they arrive. Night one had 150,000 Koreans. Um, then the North Koreans put on a show far more elaborate and entertaining than any of the wrestlers could. North- <laughs> <laughs> it, it had trapeze, marching, uh, and they said the best part is all the seats had basically a colored... Uh, like a color card that was essentially a pixel, so they oh, would okay. they would all have their like it was like a card probably like two A four. I know the things you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. So they would create images by lifting up these cards one pixel at a time, uh, such as uh, dove flying across the entire stadium, uh, and a uh, missile launch from North Korea hitting the U.S. and Japan. You know, normal things. Bischoff (laughs) describes it as the most amazing thing he's ever seen in his life. (laughs) To be fair, mate, how many people can say that? After the theatrics, Ali was introduced and was waving from a box seat. Uh, He was with the North Korean officials. And Bischoff said everyone was very respectful and he got a warm reaction. But, you know, they were probably told to react like that. He didn't know if anyone actually knew who he was. Um but he imagines if anything, they were probably favorable towards him for the fact how he responded to the Vietnam War. Yeah. Night one starts. They go out there, they wrestle to a dead fucking audience. Nothing. They killed them all. Dead silence. Oh. Now, in Japan, mm-hmm. the crowds are very respectful. Like, they're quiet for most of the time, but it's not very high energy. But when some, somebody does a cool move, they clap. But unlike US, it's like ah, the entire time. But nothing, not a fucking sound. And this could have, I think this has to do with a few things. Firstly, all the matches were either Japanese wrestlers against Japanese wrestlers or American wrestlers against Japanese wrestlers. <laughs> do you see this problem? Do you see I, where the problem yeah, is? Yeah, I'm seeing a, a shift. Uh, yeah. They're both enemies. Who do they cheer yeah, for? I just. Mm. And and in North Korea's defense, if Japan had, you know, if they hadn't spent hundreds of years trying to fucking invade Korea, maybe then they would get a more... Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, they were both enemies so that no one knew who to cheer for. And I I don't even think they knew to cheer. And also, the event was so big, I don't think anyone could actually see the wrestler. Like, a wrestling ring isn't very big. No, no. 
like even like so when the WWE comes to Melbourne, it's in Rod Laver Arena, which is about fifteen thousand seats, and even I look at the massive screens half the time, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good view. But yeah, like it just would have looked like nothing. And secondly, I think everyone thought they were there to see Greco-Roman wrestling. And even Ric Flair was sat next to the Minister of Sports and he was complaining about, what the fuck, I don't understand any of this. (laughs) So there was an accident when Two Cold Scorpio, uh, how do I say his name, wrestled Shinjaro Otanane. I'll just call him Shinjaro. One of his signature moves was to do a front flip into a leg drop. Uh, and he catches Shinjiro's nose, uh, busting the orbital bone. And they had to finish the match early. Now, Shinjiro was okay with it. You know why? Why? Accidents happen. Ah, it's that's not, a good... That's nice. It's not like he was deliberately clubbing the back of his head. <laughs> <laughs> and Shinjiro still hangs shit on him every time they meet up. <laughs> uh, and the match... Um, oh, there's more names I'm not going to say... No, the match that really stole the show is uh, Akira Hokioto, Bull Nikado, Mana Mida Chioda, Mara. Four women, four beautiful women, which is still a solid four stars match. Yeah. Um, but okay, just like what I love about this match is just think about being a North Korean woman and just seeing these amazing Amazonian goddess just throwing each other around and just having, you know, authority of each other. Yeah. And they're doing stuff that men were doing. And Bull Nikito has a blue mohawk and they had tight-fitting clothes and all of it looked like kink gear. And you can imagine if you're like a young queer woman, fucking, you wouldn't have the words to express. Yeah. No. And I'm sure there's a lot of gay dudes that were like, hello, I really like this. <laughs> And what I is guess this feeling inside. I guess for a lot of women, this was the first time in their life that they saw other women with power and agency mm. in the world. Mm. Uh, and I like to think that this just maybe they couldn't articulate what they were feeling or what they saw, but I like to think it just stayed with them. Oh, hopefully, yeah. And I just like to think there was a lot of thirsty gay dudes in that audience that just kind of, you know, it's like, I'm going to jack it, <laughs> jack it to this for the next story and this for when I get home. Because they need love too. So they end up having the best match of the entire event. Yeah. Uh, Scott Norton said that the 20-minute the main event was the hardest match he's done in his entire life. He said he even heard people booing. Oh. Um, WCW ended up editing the best matches of both nights and adding crowd cheers. So it's hard to say what the, what the event was actually Fake news. like. Fake news in wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the matches weren't very good. And I think a lot of wrestling is wrestlers reading the crowd mm. and bouncing off what they're okay. reacting to. Yeah. Like, a, like a comedian does, a musician, yeah. you, you, the, the wave, isn't it? The, the crest. But when they're not reacting, like, what do you do? Yeah. And also, um, what I love about wrestling, this was basically a week's work of work for 15 minutes of actual wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> like, what they're actually there for is so... You could you could have came that afternoon, did your matches and left that night. <laughs> <laughs> night two drew 170,000 people. So, All willing. To put this in context, the latest WrestleMania which is the biggest wrestling event in the world, and it's one of the biggest sporting events in mm. the world, 
gets about half of that. So uh, none of these matches are really worth talking about except the main event. Ric Flair comes out to the 2001 Space Odyssey theme, robes, big dick energy, and nothing. Nothing? People are sitting on their hands. Did no one even acknowledge the big dick energy? What do they know? What do they know? Antonio Noki comes out, and the place fucking explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know why, John? Why? Because of that piece of information I've been hinting at, but not telling you about. Is it all falling together like the end of Usual Suspects? Mm-hmm. Ricky Dozen trained Antonio Noki, who was by far his most successful student, and he was the spiritual successor to his throne. Mm-hmm. But Ricky Dozen isn't his real name. <gasps> it's the name he took up in Japan to avoid discrimination. His real name is Kim Sin Rak, and he was born in the South Hanyang province in North Korea during the Japanese occupation. He was their national hero. So, Anoki, because, you know, North Korea, same thing. Don't think about it. Anoki is a North Korean national hero, John. (laughs) What can't be seen right now is me. The coffee mug I was holding, I've just dropped it and it's falling in slow motion towards the ground. When they were doing the tours, they even visited Kim Simrak's house. And on this day, Ali was feeling good and he ran up the stairs to get to his house. So with the might of the powerful fucking nation of North Korea on his side, Anoki is going to go to that ring and destroy that, that evil infidel Ric Flair. Now, unlike every other wrestler on this card... The crowd has a personal connection with Anoki. It's what I said at the start. He was their guy because their government said he was their guy. Best career, best wrestler, best go beat up this motherfucker. (laughs) So Ric Flair's style actually helps out this match a lot. As they had worked in different promotions in Japan, Mm. neither man had ever wrestled each other. But... That's okay. Do you know why, John? Why, Leslie? Because both of these men are two of the greatest wrestlers ever (laughs) to strap on boots. (laughs) They can go do this match blindfold any day on Tuesday. (laughs) And Ric Flair's style was really good for this match because he spent his majority of his career being a bad guy, but he was a shit heel. Flair would do everything to get the crowd to hate him uh one of his biggest spots is when the other guy's winning he would beg in the corner then punch him in the dick (laughs) um he would always cheat he would always win by a split decision or a funny pin and at the end of his matches people would boo him people would throw garbage in the ring because you know he did this because he wanted people to pay to see him get beat up so these people go well they're, he's wrestling our local hero next week. Let's go pay and see him. You know, he only won by a split second, but maybe next week our local hero will beat him. <laughs> and this worked for him for 40 fucking years. <laughs> well, you know. And very rarely did he have Hulk Hogan moments where the crowd were cheering. He was fucking hated and despised, but that's his job. And his job was, for the most part, was to make the other guy look good. Um, <laughs> Hulk Hogan, he had matches where he would get men, he would destroy them, Mm. and they were thrown in the garbage heap. For example, in WrestleMania 2, Hulk Hogan wrestles King Kong Bundy. By WrestleMania 3, 
King Kong Bundy was in a tag team match with midgets, which he loses. Because Hulk Hogan gets him, spits him out, destroys them. Ric Flair makes the people he wrestle look good. Ric Flair makes the people he wrestle look like they're equal to him. Yeah. And that's the great thing about him. And Ric Flair can lose better than most wrestlers can win. <laughs> Let's go back to what you were saying about the, the uh, what did you say, selling of the move? The sell- yeah. That- yeah, okay, okay. Like, okay. so he would sell everything and yeah. make the other guy look strong. So he was the perfect opponent for Anoki. Yeah. Because he would make Anoki look strong and great and he would be a total shit hill. <laughs> <laughs> so I should point out both men, they were. Slightly past their primes, but granted, their primes were twice as long than ordinary wrestlers, so that's okay. <laughs> and they went there and they tore down the fucking house because Flair did all the shit heel things he could do. He was disrespectful to the referee. He used the ropes to his advantage. Um, he slammed Anoki into the steel ring post. When Anoki gets the upper hand, Flair begs for his life. <laughs> and Anoki finishes him off with a traditional Japanese kick, which might as well be Korean because, you know, it is Korean. It's Korean. He finishes off with a Korean move. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's the same thing. And don't think about it. Just think what your government tells you to think. And he wins in under 15 minutes. Now, this match was everything North Korea wanted it to be. The local hero defeats the foreigner. Evil blue passport holding bastard. Who isn't around there, doesn't understand them. Ah, Not really, but kind of, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, at the end, like no other wrestling match in the history of the world, uh, <laughs> they were presented with flowers in a large vase. What? Um, Hulk Hogan's never stood there with a tower in his head just going, I'm just having to be here, bro. Here's some, here's some flowers. Uh, and then people r- run up to ringside to shake Anoki. But uh, after returning to his feet, Flair pushes his way to (gasps) Anoki, looks him in the eyes, and you know what he does? A little pat on the head? Offers him the hand of friendship. To quote Rocky Balboa, if you can change, I can change. And that night, uh, it was like they said there was such electricity in the air that that night, we all know that North and South Korea finally ended their war and unified. And Kim Jong-il decided to stand it down. But South Korea was in a lot of debt. So private citizens would pay off their nation's debt. And in 20 years, they became a superpower, attracting three of the top 100 companies in the world. Um, and, you know, they've never had a problem since. Never. The never end. <laughs> So, once again, based off the um, pay-per-view that was released, it's really hard to know how the crowd reacted. Uh, And Flair initially thought the match was terrible, but Mm. went back later to say it was decent. Scott Norton said it was amazing. Uh, He was so impressed, he went uh, back to the locker room with Rick and said to him, Rick, that was unbelievable. No one said a peep during our matches, but you two pricks go out and tear down the house. And in classic... Rick Flair fashion puts his hand on Norton's shoulder and says, Scott, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> but it's not over. Good gravy. They have a late post-show dinner. Mm. They return to the hotel and they have an early flight to Tokyo the next morning. And everyone just wants to go the fuck home. They get to the airport. 
the plane hasn't moved. <laughs> they get their passports back. Mm -hmm. They're almost out of there. But the North Korean government wanted one last tiny itty bitty thing from Ric Flair. Mm -mm. Remember, they can see the plane. <laughs> they just wanted Ric Flair to read a statement that basically says that the US is inferior to North no. Korea. No! I don't know why I said that. Why am I surprised by that? Sorry, carry on. And John. Leslie. How can I put this? I don't know. In words? John, you know when it comes crushing down and it hurts inside? <laughs> you know when you've got to take a stand, it don't help to hide? It's like if you hurt my friends, you hurt my pride. Flair is the man. Flair can't let this slide. Flair is a real American. Flair fights for the right of the everyman. Flair is the real American. He fights for what's right. He fights for his life. So despite the fact that whatever he said, no one would ever know about this, mm. despite the fact that the other wrestlers get it, like it's being hellacious, they just want to go yeah. home. These are the moments when no one is looking at you they really define who you are as a person. Uh, and with absolutely no negative consequences, if he did want to do it, Ric Flair wouldn't sell out his country. You know why? Why? Big Dick Energy does not sell out your country, John. <laughs> uh, the BDE. Big Dick Energy rewords something and says something really polite about North Korea. And then the media said, huh, Jokes on you. We just got to write whatever we want anyway. <laughs> and, they, and they get in the plane and they get the fuck out of there. <laughs> they touch down in Tokyo and it's pouring rain. And Ric Flair in a $3,000 suit gets on his hands and knees and kisses the ground and says, I love Japan. We're going out tonight. <laughs> And they did. A few days later, they wrestled, and they only managed to draw a crowd of 48,000 people. What fucking losers. <laughs> and from then, there was never another high-profile wrestling event in a problematic country with a politician in the main event. Never. Never. Except... <laughs> last year... The WWE did a deal with Saudi Arabia to start doing uh, pay-per-views. And it's in last year, they netted, I think, $50 million. And the first pay-per-view they did was called The Greatest Royal Rumble. They've done two so far. Uh, and it was kind of fascinating because they would only sell ringside seats to families that had children. And the, and the announcers kept on referring it to the progressive Saudi Arabia. Right. And there was no female wrestlers in the card. And mm. there was this wrestler that has an LGTB gimmick. Uh, I, bet he was, I bet he was right at the front. He I know like, he came out wearing black and they didn't kind of refer to the fact oh, that the Bella okay, Club's for everyone. Yeah. And uh, uh, and then they had this big Royal Rumble and this guy called Braun Strowman won and he won a trophy. Braun Strowman's a big guy and the trophy was basically swords <laughs> welded together and the trophy was bigger than he was. So the next year they had a pay-per-view called the Crown Jewel um, which took 
Uh, uh, just off the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. You know, the Turkish. Oh. And then John Cena was like, no, fuck, man, I'm not going to do it. And like a bunch of her profile wrestlers pulled out and they needed something big for the main event. And the main event was set to be Triple H, Shawn Michaels, The yeah. Undertaker and Kane. Uh, and to put a little bit of context, uh, The Undertaker retired Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 26. Mm. And unlike every other wrestler in the face of the earth, he stayed retired up until this match because they needed him. He just wanted to step us to the plate. Um, but who was the politician in this group? It was newly elected mayor to Knox County, Glenn Jacobson, a.k.a. Kane, <laughs> the, who you might remember from the See No Evil franchise. <laughs> I've completely forgotten he was a politician now. But what I like most about this, because Anoki did it for political reasons, yeah. but in this, he was doing it to help out his old work and to help out his friends. Yeah. But you can just, I love the idea of him explaining this to why he's taken a week off work, despite <laughs> just getting this job. You spoken to Dave in HR? Yeah, I've written out the forms. Yeah, yeah I have to it. go main event and sort of, you remember when I mentioned I said I was a wrestler? I've not told you about that one. Okay. So what happened to everyone? Oh, can we play some music like Louie Louie? Like the end of Animal House? This event had zero political effect. Really? Because it was too fucking weird for anyone to care about it. <laughs> As I mentioned before, it was re-edited and called The Collision in Korea and went on to be one of the worst-selling pay-per-views of all time. And it's currently not available for streaming. Oh, really? Yep. Far out. Anoki went on to lose the election... Uh, because what the fuck does a pay-per-view in North Korea have to do with any of the things he's accused, he's accused of embezzling money? Uh, so he would wrestle on and off until the year 2000 because clearly he retired in 1988. Yeah. So clearly he retired in the year 2000. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. people don't retire. Uh, he was re-elected in 2013 and he was also suspended for 30 days for an unauthorized trip into North Korea. <laughs> Where he's, you know, he's continued to help relations between North Korea and Japan and even staged another wrestling event a few years ago that attracted about 15,000 people, but was very well received by the looks of it. Ric Flair would continue to work for WCW until it went out of business in the year 2001, and he actually wrestled the final match. He went to the WWE where he had a decent run. He was most notable for managing an updated version of the Horseman, which was called Evolution, which allowed basically younger wrestlers to have TV time. But, you know, he's still on TV, but yeah, he wasn't yeah. the focus. So it gave him uh, longevity. This, he was there until 1998, where Vince McMahon in real life told him he was fucking too old and he had to retire. So in story, Vince McMahon said the next match he loses, he would have to retire. Uh, and this result, and this is great, this resulted in some of the best WWE talent stepping up and losing to Flair. <laughs> because he spent a career making other people look great. Yeah. And on his retirement, they all lined up and said, fucking, it will be an honor to lose for you. <laughs> and it all ended in a match against Shawn Michaels, <laughs> who was retired by The Undertaker at WrestleMania 24 because it's all weirdly connected. Uh, and also, Shawn Michaels' gimmick was a weird, it was an updated version of Ric Flair's gimmick because <gasps> nothing's new and it's all connected. <laughs> And no one thought in a million fucking years that Ric Flair would win this match. But because if you're having your, like he's having his retirement match at WrestleMania and he got inducted yeah. into the Hall of Fame the night before, you can't leave the business a better way. Um, but the beauty about this match, no one thought he would win, 
But there's a point where you go, oh, fuck, he could win. <laughs> there's a point where you go, oh, shit. But that's the beauty, and that's the storytelling. Yeah. And that's getting, you're going to get a place where you have it down in your mind. You go, oh, geez. So that night he retires. And what, quite honestly, is one of the most touching moments in wrestling. Rick's in the middle of the ring. He's exhausted. He's got his, he's got his dukes up like an old-timey fighter. Come on, and man. he's got nothing left in his tank. And Shawn Michaels is in the corner and he's in the position to do his finishing move, which is mm. a super kick. And he genuinely looks like he's about to cry. And he mouths the words, I love you, and kicks Flair into retirement. <laughs> and then both men are just crying in the ring. And they just have this moment where Shawn Michaels thanks them that... He's allowed him to be his last match and allows him to retire. Far out. Uh, then Shawn Michaels gets the fuck out of the ring, so Ric Flair has time alone with the crowd, and they just love him for his decades of work. And then the next night on Raw, the entire roster comes out to thank him, including The Undertaker, who in a very rare moment breaks character because he's so emotional and he bows down and honors no Flair. This was the greatest single retirement in the history of wrestling. It's a shame he started working in the indie promotions like a couple of months later. <laughs> <laughs> like I even saw him wrestle Hulk Hogan in Melbourne at one point. Because, <laughs> you know, Ric Flair's really shit at money. When you're kissing the ground in $3,000 suits. <laughs> he goes on to wrestle at TNA, Total Non-Stop Action, which I mentioned before, which at the time was the second biggest promotion in North America. Uh, and stop me if you've heard this one before. Uh, the company was actually funded by a zillionaire. And at the time, Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff were hired. Yeah. And they got all their garbage mates rehired. Literally, the garbage mates... From the 90s, they're even older and even more shit. Um, Do you like shitty old wrestlers? Then come see us. And, but I quite like this. So there's a, um, he's in a feud against this guy called Jay Lethal, who's Jay Lethal. He, one of his gimmick is the Black Machismo, which he's a black macho man, Randy Savage. All right. And in the storyline, he loses his WWE Hall of Fame ring, but they don't say WWE. Uh, so the next night, Jay Lethal comes out as Ric Flair and is fucking pitch perfect. And Ric Flair has to cut a promo against Ric Flair. <laughs> and it's, and it's just the most, amazing meta thing ever and that was the night he said space mountain oldest ride longest line <laughs> he's and i'm i'm a little bit vague on the timeline um so but his his life is pretty horrible at this point uh he's got a lot of money troubles he goes through another divorce and uh and the worst part of his life is when his youngest son reed dies and we all we all thought reed was going to be the successor to the mm. flair legacy dies from a drug overdose which mm. completely destroys him obviously oh. uh, and he buries reed with his wwe hall of fame ring he's an interesting character as i said before people let him be a prick for 40 years and you know he got into this when he was a young man and probably had no one telling him it's like fucking <laughs> pull your head in mate yeah, yeah. uh and he just realized he's like he's getting older um and he's just he realizes like he's been rick fair for 40 years and he just can't do that anymore yeah. his body's not there and it's just not a life he wants to live he's been a shit father and husband for most of his life at this time he's like a grandfather and he doesn't want to 
doesn't want his legacy to be a guy that fucked a crazy amount of women. <laughs> and he just can't be Ric Flair anymore. And he, he completely owns this. He just has to be a human again. Uh, and for the first time in his life, he um, enters a relationship with a wo- woman and apparently has been monogamous and brags <laughs> about... <laughs> 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 and they got married a couple of years ago. Uh, and then around this time, he became the second person in WWE history to get in the Hall of Fame fucking twice. <laughs> the second time a part of the Horsemen. And then... What I love about the story, the most batshit crazy thing happens to him at this point. So he has four kids. His oldest son, David, was a part of WCW, mm. just didn't have it. Then um, Reed, and then he's got another child who doesn't have a public life. I don't even know their name. Then uh, he's got uh, his youngest daughter, Ashley, who was like, you know, how about I give this wrestling thing a try? <laughs> And she was really good at it right away. (laughs) And traditionally, what happened, and this was just a perfect storm, traditionally, the WWE has never gave two shits about their female wrestlers. A lot of time, they would hire fitness models Mm. or women who just went seriously about wrestling and saw it as as a stepping stone to do something else. Uh, Look, we're being inclusive. Look, look, we're being inclusive. Around this time, they had a female match on Raw that lasted two minutes, which outraged the fans. And there was this Twitter chant, give divas a chance, which made the WWE get serious about female wrestlers. And it was pushed primarily by Triple H. And they did. They hired women of a lot of different body types, a lot of different backgrounds. And a lot of them were really good. They were so good that they started drawing better than the men for the first time (laughs) ever. And Ashley got renamed as Charlotte because um, Ric Flair was from Charlotte. North Carolina somewhere. And she kind of used her dad's gimmick. You know, she was a goddess. She would come to the same music. And for the first part of her career, she was managed by her dad. So this man, who no doubt has been pretty terrible, no flair, no hair, pretty terrible to women for the majority of his life, primarily his wives, has found himself on the (laughs) forefront of this female (laughs) wrestling revolution with his daughter being the focus. That's so random. And I guess the payoff being at the last WrestleMania, uh, for the first time they had women main eventing, which was his daughter, uh, Becky Lynch, and Ronda Rousey. Uh, And Becky Lynch is great. She's this (laughs) Irish scrapper wrestler who came out of nowhere, and she's really great at Twitter, and she's just really mean to people. (laughs) And... um, She's and it's so and like she just kind of likes rolling people up and there's a great kind of Irish kind of hey. and she did the best thing she just started referring to herself as the man and <laughs> dudes online could not fucking handle this and um wait but, wait wait the male ego is not that fragile surely do you know but you know why she's the man why is she the man dude because she's taken off the door of the man and to be the man you have to beat the man <laughs> and it's like it's all these old ideas rework and the main event was great except they botched the ending uh but the original ending was going to be charlotte flair tapping out to becky lynch and once they let classic making somebody else look better like it's everything that's been done again so we'll pretend that was the actual ending and not the botched ending um and this is what i like i really like so the day before wrestlemania rick flair wrote on twitter it's official charlotte is no longer rick flair's daughter I am Charlotte Flair's dad. 
Aww. All the accolades that have come my way over time are diminished by her accomplishments now. I'm so proud of you, Charlotte. I have a lot of complex feelings about Ric Flair. <clears throat> and, and I'll just put it like this. He did not live the life of a good man, but I don't exactly think he's going to die a bad one. Oh. And I'm going to give Ric Flair the last words. I do not have any fond memories of the trip whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, why would you? <laughs> what are we doing next time? In another four months when we do a podcast. <laughs> I blame everyone else but us. Um, so next time, uh, we're going to do some true crime. Stuff. Nice. Yeah, well, uh, I say we're going to do some true crime. Um, I've taken issue with a book that I read uh, about four months ago, roughly around about the same time we were supposed to do another episode. Um, yeah, it's it's a book about a uh, sea disaster. Uh, well, sea disaster, uh, that bit of water between New Jersey and New York mm-hmm. um, that led to the death of an entire graduation class. And um, basically, the author... Uh, who wrote it, she was sort of pushed by her publishing company uh, to uh, news uh, uh, a serial killer as the reason why the boat sank. Um, it's it's not good, Leslie. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, it's, it's weird. It's a very strange tale. Lots of um, forced supernatural elements. I'm also going to be looking at um, a bunch of murders that happened in the going back all the way to the 30s. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be good. And hopefully next month. Yeah, (laughs) hopefully next month, man.